Hello everyone, welcome to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. I'm your host Nathan Bartlebaugh. It's been a bit since you've uh, heard from us here at Phantom Galaxy. We do have a new podcast we've just started. We're still working out some of the details with the full rollout for that podcast. But you can check out the first episode of Casting the Bones, which is a horror-related podcast. Tonight's episode is back to Phantom Galaxy. We're getting on a regular track schedule now, and we've got a lot of things coming up. This particular episode is pretty large. It's actually, uh, there's going to be two pieces to it. This first piece, I'm going to bring us a review of a Wrinkle in Time, the new film that just released. I saw it earlier this week and wanted to get a fresh review out. And then after that, Chris Durham and myself are going to look at several different movies and TV shows that are out. We also take a look at the Oscars. This was recorded just before the Oscars actually aired, so you'll be able to hear some of our speculation. It's mostly about the genre films, and uh, for most most of the part, we, we were correct, it, it looks like. Uh, Shape of Water did win Best Picture. Kudos to Guillermo del Toro. I thought it was kind of cool that the day after del toro uh, won the award the creature from the black lagoon was celebrating its anniversary so that was pretty cool so you'll have all that and that'll be coming up shortly so before that let's get down to a wrinkle in time a wrinkle in time is disney's latest movie not tied to marvel not tied to star wars and actually something somewhat original it was made into a film adaptation several years ago not really the greatest adaptation uh it was it had that back when hallmark was still sort of making tv movies it, it kind of comes from that whole era based off of a work by it, it's based off a work by madame lingle who it's based off a work by madeline lingle who wrote a series of books and wrinkle of time is one of those series of books she was actually uh, past her 40s when she first got it published and it had been rejected uh several times close to i believe 30 times before she found someone who would publish it and in 1962, it went on the next year to win the Newbery Award. So it's a pretty popular children's book. I remember reading it growing up. Uh, very interesting because it falls into an interesting category. There are books, I think, that are sort of accepted by the Christian audience, uh, fantasy books. There's a very small segment of those sorts of books that sort of get a pass because even though a lot of times people will have issues with fantasy fiction and will you know you saw with harry potter there's cries of devilry and witchcraft there's certain books that get a pass c.s lewis's narnia novels J.R.R. tolkien's books and essentially this is because uh those authors are identified christians uh, the interesting thing about lingle she was an episcopalian and so when she wrote this book uh it kind of found secular critics that were complaining it was too religious and it was encountering all the same sorts of things that J.K. Rowling encountered with cries of witchcraft, of trying to take Christian thought and make it too new agey. So there are a lot of these things going on, but from Lengel's perspective, she was trying to marry her faith with her interest in science. And some of that comes through in the book because it involves characters, a, a family a family unit sort of hopping through dimensions and hopping through time, They're doing so in a relatively abstract way. Uh, this isn't uh, a lot of the ideas, however, do fall more within what you would find in religious thought. The main characters that they encounter are sort of stand-ins for angels, and the ultimate evil here, which is just called the It, it's more of a thought and heart infection if you will which all of that is back information that may not actually be necessary when walking into this new film because Ava DuVernay's movie while sticking to the structure and I think capturing the heart of what 
Langle was writing and doing doesn't really have much connection. Uh, people walking into this looking for any kind of faith-based film won't really find that, at least faith-based in the sense that it replicates Christian values or replicates a Christian worldview. What you will find, what the movie does hone in on, is essentially a lot of positivity. That's where it's attempting to go. And in that way, it reminds me a lot where its general gist is to embrace positive aspects of being a child and of being a, a person who can sometimes find themselves overwhelmed in life, uh, how you can turn to uh, the positive resources you have within you, that the way you can turn flaws into advantages, potentially powerful stuff. The way it's played out in this movie sort of reminds me of a film from a few years ago, another movie I was initially very excited about, uh, which is Brad Bird's Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland was another movie that felt like it was trying to be a nice, warm hug. And uh, the problem sometimes with warm hugs is while they can be so vital and so helpful in a moment where we really need them, uh, that hug lasts too long, or if someone starts to put their head on your shoulder, you're kind of ready for it to be done. So if it gets if it gets too invasive, you you want to you want to pull back a little bit. And sometimes really well-meaning movies, if they aren't propped up by other elements, can sometimes feel that way. So comes down to what's the verdict on A Wrinkle in Time? The basic story for anyone who's not really in the know, this is no real spoilers here, is the story follows Meg Murray, and Storm Reed plays Meg Murray in this film. Her father is played by Chris Pine. He is missing when the story begins. Guga Mabatha plays her mother. Both of her parents are scientists, and as we learn through some backstory, they have been looking for a way to travel through time and space using something called the Tesseract. This is all pretty much hypothetical and theoretical for them initially, uh, until one day her father disappears. He's been missing for about a year when the movie picks up, and Meg is having a lot of her own issues. It's been four years since her father disappeared. She's still really holding out hope that he's out there somewhere. She has nightmares about where he might be or what might have befallen him, but she really doesn't know. Add this to the general insecurity that one feels when they're in high school, and you've got this headspace that Meg's in right now, and there's a lot going on. When she looks at herself and the person she sees, this African-American girl who has mixed parents and an extremely smart, uh, almost genius-level little brother, and uh, she herself is very intelligent and very bright. The movie never explicitly states this, but the way that Reed plays the character, you can see her struggling with these things and trying to figure out whether they are strengths or their weaknesses that hold her back from being like everybody else. That everybody else, that external force, is mostly demonstrated in a school setting where she has a group of teenage girls, bullies, who fit a certain kind of image, and she does not. And we're never completely certain what has brought their ire other than that sort of tribal instinct to treat somebody differently because somebody has to be treated differently. However, she, again, Meg's character here has really been developed in a way where she's thoughtful, she's smart, and she isn't just reactionary to everything that happens to her, although there are some pretty strong reactions and emotional reactions in the beginning. You can see a young person actually struggling with the difference between what they're thinking and what they're feeling, and you very rarely ever capture that in a uh, a child performance, in a teenage performance at this level of like a 14-year-old trying to capture this element in a character. Sometimes these characters can become very precocious. They can become like uh, jaded little adults. And what uh, the strength is that Storm Reed does is a lot of her acting 
is uh, down to physical gestures, down to body language and body movements. There, there's a scene where a fellow classmate, uh, Levi Miller, plays Calvin, a young boy who ends up in this adventure with her. Uh, he goes to her school and he is commenting. Uh, he makes a compliment about her hair and her reaction there, which is about 10% words and 90% other form of gesturing and acting, uh, it, it really becomes clear in a scene like that how Reed is bringing this character to life, that there's a lot more than what's on the page. Because of that element, I think that this Meg Murray is a much stronger character than the one uh, in the books. Uh, there are different elements to her. DuVernay and her scriptwriters have created a different character, but it's a more compelling character. I really enjoyed what they were doing. Uh, Reed, again, demonstrates a really strong ability to play off of what's happening around her, which is really important when you have a story like this where very shortly after the first 10-15 minutes jumps into a lot of uh, kind of cosmic world hopping and a lot of strange abstract uh, concepts. So when she and her brother Charles Wallace one night uh, get a get an unexpected visit from a very strange sort of woman who looks like she is a kind of reject from Cirque du Soleil. And this is Mrs. Watson. She comes in, she's played by Reese Witherspoon, and she seems like she just poured it in from Oz, really. And that piques your interest uh, initially because suddenly we feel like we're in a world that could become, uh, in a film that could become something very special like A Wizard of Oz or... Uh, like a Roald Dahl sort of story, you're getting a little bit of that element. Uh, the interesting element here is she doesn't speak just to the children, she speaks to the mother as well, and she lets her know that the Tesseract is real and that they can use it to tesser, to move between realities. And then Meg and her brother are visited by two other Misses. We have Mrs. What's It? We all, they also encounter Mrs. Who, who is in a sort of rundown house uh, at, the, at the end of the street. And she's played by Mindy Colling, who only really speaks in quotes, who then she attributes to uh, the speaker. You know, uh, sometimes she's quoting Gandhi, sometimes she's quoting Outcast. You know, it kind of goes back and forth there. But the uh, that element makes it so she's more of a cipher. They meet the third, the third Mrs., who is Mrs. Witch, who is played by Oprah Winfrey. So you have these three characters who reveal, in the book they reveal that they are a very specific, uh, they're a very specific sort of alien, if you will, and that they live on a planet. In the book, these characters are visualized one way, which is a very striking image, and that's sort of done away with here. We, for the most part, with the exception of, of uh, one particular instance, we see them in these forms, although Oprah does often show up as a sort of... Uh, 50 foot version so if you will uh which that that's one of the initial issues that, that appears with this film is this particularly casting i i like all of these people uh they may be just a little bit too well known or a little too uh obvious to play these characters because these are supposed to be sort of strange celestial somewhere half between witches and halfway between angels and they film calls for a very strange otherworldly vibe to them but they're so uh, they're so recognizable and they don't move far enough away from their personalities that it's more distracting to see them all decked out like Ziggy Stardust. And so now that there's a Kong-sized Oprah wandering around, and it, it, it's more distracting 
than it is involving into the central elements of fantasy. At this point, the characters start hopping from world to world looking for Meg's father, who they tell her is still alive, and they've heard a call from the universe. Uh, he's basically been reaching out and looking for her. He's trapped by something that they call the It, which resides in the dark planet Camasot. Camasots, uh, the way it materializes in the sky, very much reminiscent of the dark vortex uh black hole cloud uh, in the film The Neverending Story, uh, which, as you're watching A Wrinkle in Time, you can see a lot of sort of counterpoints from the Wolfgang Peterson film, and then there was also the the 1980s novel. So uh, any kind of similarities are probably incidental on the thematic level. However, DuVernay's film, in a lot of ways, does seem like there's a lot of people working on it, uh, if DuVernay herself is not one of them, who are sort of maybe whether consciously or subconsciously calling back to a never-ending story. In the moments where the movie really works, it starts to capture a little bit of that magic. My biggest complaint with this film, which I think if you were to look at it next to a film like The Never-Ending Story, where there are a lot of sort of, uh, it's strange to say that both of these movies are kind of like existential children's films. They send characters on missions, but the primary gist of the mission isn't just defeating a bad guy and saving the world. Here, in both stories, we have uh, missing parents, we have uh, ostracized relationships from society, and then we have a journey that is about restoring something, not just in the world at large, but in the individual child. And uh, the, the threat is something that isn't easily visualized. Uh, Wrinkle in Time uh, has even less external threat than than something like the Neverending Story. The Neverending Story at least has the Grimoire, which is the kind of wolf monster that works for the Nothing. The Nothing is this thing that's just eating everything. You know that it, it's basically the absence of imagination, the absence of hope, and. The Grimoire gets good lines in that film. Uh, people without hope are easy to rule. And there's an absence of that kind of um, identity to the villain. It's stories that want to be existential children's stories, they need a lot of confidence in their fantasy setting. They have to really make that world sort of sing. I've always felt like in the Peterson film, you had a lot of really interesting images to hold on to a never-ending story. The rock biter, Falcor, the luck dragon... And in Wrinkle in Time, we jump from world to world so quickly that we see very, very few, like, really establishing details. Uh, there's there's not a lot in the way of, like, world building. In fact, some of the worlds look like almost video game backgrounds at points. There's one world where it seems like all the plant life there is alive and has a, has a mind of its own. But we only see little pieces of this. And, and it's sort of like we jump there and then we jump right back. And there's a moment where we have this leafy sort of beautiful uh, dragon made out of vegetation that's really neat. And we have the children riding on the back. And it's a beautiful moment, but it then pulls back almost immediately. And I think that that's one of the conflicting things with this movie. It's very well-meaning. It has its heart in the right place. But every time we go off on a fantastic uh, journey, if you will, it feels like that journey is sidelined. It doesn't demonstrate the same sort of passion or devotion that the human elements do. And sometimes it feels like DuVernay is so focused on wanting to show, uh, to, to kind of bang home these adages about love and acceptance. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but they end up being uh, described to us in platitudes as opposed to forward action. So when we see these characters coming up against the dark, intoning the, you know, kind of using love as a 
totem to dispel evil that works, but we don't always see it in a practical action sort of way. Uh, what I mean by that is in a film like Selma that is also directed by DuVernay, she showed characters fighting back against darkness with positivity uh, through the story of Martin Luther King. There we saw real active action. Here characters say a lot of things and they do very little. Even at, the le uh, even at Storm Reed's level, there's little going on. The three misses don't really get a chance to really shine because they are just there to explain things. They move from planet to planet. They do very little in terms of actually helping Meg except to offer her fortune cookie bits of wisdom. We end up kind of watching this movie in pieces. Uh, you sort of are only, if you're enjoying it, you're enjoying it in the moment and the whole thing doesn't seem to come together. This was very frustrating to me because I think that Lingle has set up the parameters for a very interesting world with some interesting ideas. It was then the job of the filmmakers to build these worlds and give us some actual uh, places that we could inhabit, characters that we could uh, see the themes of the film being displayed out of. And I think that that's the thing. I am all for movies where love and truth win the day. I think we need those kinds of stories. I think we need to see films where the gist of the film is about overcoming negativity and learning to love uh, the people around us, ourselves, in a, in a more complete way. The issue here, again, is that it all feels very vague. Uh, any kind of spiritual elements that Langle had built into her story, uh, again, whether consciously or subconsciously, they're not so much leached out, but they're flattened out. I think what we there's no dynamic. The story hasn't created its own internal rules, and basically what we're seeing are just a lot of nice ideas that never coalesce. This the problem with this is it ultimately makes the movie really kind of boring and I'm uh, I'm a person who loves fantasy movies I was very excited for this film and I love a lot of the ideas that it's playing with but I wanted to see more I think this is a huge problem when the most interesting passages of this movie occur at the very beginning when we're seeing a loving family unit working together I would have watched a story where Pine and Mabatha Raw interacted together trying to solve the mystery of the Tesseract I would have watched that movie before I would have watched this one uh, Pine has a lot of chemistry actually with Reed when they finally encounter each other later in the story and, and, and in the flashbacks. I was into that stuff. That's where DuVernay uh, excels. She kind of loses a hand a little bit on the fantasy. I don't know exactly what could have been done here to, to improve those pieces, but my feeling is that they needed to commit to these fantasy worlds and not just use them as a kind of very vague metaphor. And that's that's some of the problem that was inherent in the book. And the film, instead of uh, instead of digging into that and building on it, moves away. It was really disappointing, I think. Uh, there was a lot of potential here. I always love it when Disney wants to move out of the mold. And seeing a film like this, it instantly reminds me of movies that used to come out uh, that when Disney took some chances back in the 80s. There is a film that Disney made in the 80s that uh, was underrated then. It's probably still underrated now. And it dealt with themes of the, the darkness and the light, the good versus the evil. Uh, that film also employed a lot of Christian imagery. Uh, and it had something really to say about the way we perceive things and how we can let in evil or we can choose to embrace good and in ways that felt concrete. That movie was also an adaptation of a book. That was Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, and Jack Clayton, who... Uh, years ago had done a really good movie called The Innocence, based off of Henry James' Turn of the Screw, 
does Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is about a dark carnival that comes to town and is basically taking all of the townspeople, sort of turning their inner desires against them. That's a fantastic movie. It's also a great book. Uh, I wasn't holding A Wrinkle in Time to that that standard, but there are moments in this film, the Breed's performance, uh, DuVernay's handling of the early uh, family scenes, that showed that there could be that kind of movie in this one. And what I felt I was left with was a lot of uncertain special effects scenes, a lot of good actors standing around in costume waiting to have something to do. Uh, when you have Zach Galifianakis playing a character called the Happy Medium, and he almost never cracks a smile through that entire scene, that's a strange use of your resources. It really is. It's always difficult, I think, to sort of review a movie that you really want to recommend, that you really want it to be good. And there are ways in which I think it is. There are going, there is going to be a segment of audience, particularly young people, I think, who might see this movie and really connect to it. And it could be helpful. I mean, again... The, the, the Reed character and the way she processes is really intriguing and really, I think it's something we really need right now to see in film. And there are going to be people, just like we watched movies. As a child, I connected with Fly the Navigator. I've seen that movie re more recently. I have no idea why I connected with the movie. Uh, so there are going to be people to see it. I wouldn't necessarily put you off of seeing it, but I can't recommend it as a, as a success. It is a bit of a disappointment. And, and that's that's unfortunate. Okay, and now we're going to turn it back over to uh, myself and Chris for the rest of the episode. Thanks, guys. It's been so long since we've been together. There's been so much stuff that's kind of come out, both TVs, movies, and uh, and whatnot. That you know, there's a lot of stuff we want to cover. One of the big ones, of course, is Black Panther has been out. You don't really mm -hmm. need us to tell you to go see it, but <laughs> you get some of our thoughts and, and what we thought about it. A new movie that you probably could use a little push for is. Uh, Alex Garland's Annihilation, mm -hmm. which is a smaller sci-fi movie. It's performing like a smaller sci-fi <laughs> movie, uh, but it's not as small as some of his previous movies. He did Ex Machina and Sunshine, I think, is a bigger budget than those movies, at least a bigger budget than Ex Machina. And uh, I think it's a very rarefied, it's, it's a specific audience kind of movie. It very has its so. niche. I think it will definitely find its niche more on home video and things like that. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to you, Chris, about this. Netflix... It start like I'm starting to almost get slightly frustrated with how much interesting, <laughs> intriguing stuff is showing up on Netflix. So much it's content, starting to kind of overwhelm me a little yeah. bit. My like my list is getting larger and larger. Exactly. And every time I turn it on, something else distracts me. I, <laughs> get, I constantly get the pop up that says, "Oh, here's a movie you might be interested." Well, you know, in. I've been saying for years. Oh, uh, Nate, you'll ask me, "Hey, have you watched this yet?" I'm like, oh, it's, in my, "It's in my queue." I never get around to watching it because there's always something new popping up that I watch before I get into my queue. It's crazy. Right. It's not always good, but it <laughs> pops up and it's right there, and they've been doing some cool stuff. Uh, you know, Super Bowl, and I I think you, like me, do we care that much about it? I don't really care much about the Super Bowl. When I end up watching it, it's sort of because my family wants to have yeah, snacks just, and everybody turn on. To, yeah. Like the one time of the year we're like, I watch football, but <laughs> I don't really watch football. I watch it for the commercials and having snacks. Yeah. And... But this year, I felt like there was, like, Netflix added some vested interest because, like, halfway through, seeing these things pop up and people are saying, Netflix is about to, like, show a trailer for the new Cloverfield movie. I was like, oh, I wonder where that was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think last year, or the year before, Cloverfield Lane, the trailer popped up during the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, it's releasing in two months. <laughs> this was crazier because they're like, oh, Netflix is going to release the trailer, and then they're going to release the movie after the Super Bowl. Yeah. I was like, that's too cool to actually happen. Like, exactly. there's no way that's going to happen. And yet, and he, I, mean, I haven't even seen the trailer for this thing. So suddenly, boom, here's a trailer for it. 
I knew it was called the God Particle. I knew it had something to do with a space station. And we're watching this happen. And then there it is. It's happening after this. I'm like, good for you, Netflix. That's awesome. But the back of my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, how good is this really? Like, how? Like, if 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 you had this real confidence, Bad Robot has kind of given it to Netflix, and you're doing this with it. This is because I mean Netflix is. We've got movies like Red Sparrow, which comes out this weekend that you and I haven't seen yet, but that's kind of a Netflix produced movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, this theatrical worthy? Like, what are we going to get here? And then I watched it right after the Super Bowl. Did you watch it around the like Absolutely right afterwards? Did. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll let you leave with this because while we we talk about that a little bit, uh, what did you? What were your thoughts on it? I thought it was okay. Um, I enjoyed. Um, not so much the Cloverfield universe because I feel they didn't really do much with that. They're all, you know, pointing out, oh, this is going to explain so many things about the Cloverfield movie. I don't feel like they really truly delved that much into it. I thought that they had an interesting, uh, interesting space movie um, mm-hmm. where they did some stuff that was reminiscent of some other things like. Uh, Event Horizon and like Solaris and stuff like that. Sunshine. It was Supernova. Oh, Supernova was a pile of crap. <laughs> I actually almost left the theater for that one. I never leave the theater for movies, no matter how bad they are. Supernova was bad, and I that think that had like ten different directors on it, oh. uh, and they and they were like high profile. I think it was like Walter Hill was involved, and then Coppola came in, and it just seemed to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Mm. Uh, that's bottom of the barrel. So I always enjoy a good like weird sci-fi space story. Like mysterious things happening on a ship, haunted house in space, basically. Exactly that kind of thing. I enjoy a lot. Uh, so I had high hopes for it when I started watching it, and uh, you know it kind of delivered on some cool th- spills and thrills and chills here and there. But uh, overall, it felt like uh, like they had some good ideas and they want to throw a few fill th- uh, thrills in there, and didn't it didn't quite mesh up though as a full movie because they were also trying to jam in this Cloverfield stuff that didn't really feel like it. Was appropriate, like it felt like they were using a shoehorn to jam it in, um, like yeah, very crudely stitched together. Yes. So I was, I was kind of like, it was cool though that they did it the whole way they did it, like re- releasing a commercial halftime, like, hey guys, when the, when this is over, you can watch this movie. Like that was kind of a neat promotional thing, and hopefully they'll do that once or twice more, you know, with something else. But yeah, I was, I, I thought it was alright. I'm waiting for the point when Netflix finds a way to not, to create something without letting us know it was ever made at all. And then suddenly, <laughs> which is almost, I think, the case. Suddenly, I realize there's a Lost in Space TV show coming out of Netflix, nowhere, right? Out of, out of nowhere. So, the, in some ways, they may already be doing that. But yes, it almost as if t- if if two alternate universes just mashed themselves together <laughs> and uh, were spilling into each other. The gimmick of releasing the movie during the Super Bowl and suddenly making fans aware of this thing and building hype and then kind of re- letting them realize that they don't even have to wait that long that they can have it right now is kind of awesome. It's like, hey, it's like a little Christmas present, yeah, you right. know. Uh, the thing with the Cloverfield universe or these Cloverfield movies is, as we point out, they have almost no real connection to each other. Like, at least the first two. Like Clover, And I like Cloverfield, and I really like Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane. But their relationship to any kind of franchise is very thin. Mm-hmm. The fun or the anticipation is sort of, oh, there's this movie. How is this going to match up with the other? At least that was Clo- mm-hmm. 10 Cloverfield Lane. How is it going to match up? When seeing the movie, you realize tangential at best. Like mm-hmm. they're more thematically linked than they are 
literally linked. Or at least that Which, was pre- prior to this film. Yeah. And this film goes out of its way to deliver... I'll be, I'm will be. i just going to be perfectly blunt and honest here as I'm talking around it. it. It introduces a lazy, vague device mm-hmm. to show how all these worlds can be connected. Yeah. And how future... So it's basically created a way to grandfather in anything. I can have a story set during the Stone Age, and I can find a way to make <laughs> it connect. We were talking before this yeah. at dinner about Far Cry. You know, how Far Cry, the video game universe... Has all these different stories, and there's no need to feel like it's connected yeah, by other zero connection than a basic aesthetic mm-hmm. sense of kind of a first-person story-driven shooter yeah. kind of feel. Yeah, you, know? you got four cry, Far Cry Five or uh, Four. It's about a war in uh, made-up Kyrat, like a right. Nepali country. The next one, it's back in the Stone Ages, Far Cry Prime. There's nothing yes. connecting, and, and then the next one's going to be about uh, fighting off a cult in Montana. So. <laughs> How awesome ideas. It gives the flexibility. In the 80s yeah. when they made, you know, five different uh, house movies or whatever they made and each one was different, there's no need to necessarily connect them. It's funny you mention that because they had one called uh, Far Cry Blood Dragon. It was like a shortened game, but it was just like cheesy 80s VHS technology and neon colors and you're fighting crazy little dragon monsters. It was a weird little game, but it was all about that 80s nostalgia feel. So there's flexibility here. The problem here is the J.J. Abrams mystery box concept. Because Mm -hmm. these movies are more like events than they are like movies for the most Mm -hmm. part. So there needs to almost be that moment where you where they're allowed to obsess over the trailer for a month and analyze. We have those people, Mm -hmm. guys sipping his Mountain Dew while he talks about, (laughs) I think they said it's a lion in the trailer, you know? (laughs) So those months of anticipation for Cloverfield 1 and then the couple of months where you're trying to figure out what 10 Cloverfield Lane is, that's almost part of the fun more so than the, you know, Mm -hmm. I think those things, 10 Cloverfield Lane was a legitimately good movie. Cloverfield was a fun monster movie, but part of the, the whole Cloverfield aspect of it, it was more this aura that surrounds it. There was no time to really even have any of that, that kind of discussion. You know, there was no attempt to have any kind of mystery. There was no space to do it because suddenly, here it is, now it's coming out. And the movie itself, like you said, just didn't live up. It didn't, it wasn't good enough to sort of like propel the mystery of Cloverfield forward. Mm -hmm. There was no mystery. They just gave you a very pat, the minute Donald Logue shows up and starts talking, I (laughs) I knew in my heart we were getting no more than that. Yeah, like it. Far as I, there's a couple other callbacks that are a waste of time, in my opinion. Yes, but those couple moments where Donald Logue is talking, that is literally all there is to connect it. One line, really, <laughs> and it's very clunkily written. It's, it's like it feels like something a middle schooler would do to explain why all of their stories have this element. It's like they're all connected. So if this is the if this is the format going forward, it does feel like they just grabbed a sort of half finished sci fi idea. Mm-hmm. Which admittedly has some cool moments in it, which has some cool haunted house creepy moments. Mm-hmm. There's a bit involving a disembodied hand that's kind of fun. There's a really cool moment where they hear something banging on the interior of the ship, and they kind of go up and start pulling the ship apart, and they find what's inside. Mm-hmm. That was probably my favorite moment in terms of like kind of creepy, creepy. Yeah, moments. that was definitely for me. Yeah. Um, Everything after that was just felt kind of hollow. There were some attempts at emotional connection. I guess we should say everybody, you've got a group of people up on a space station, and they're trying to basically start kind of like the Hadron Collider, more or less, right? Like They're, they're trying mm-hmm. to start this device that will create a source of energy. They're, it will stop all the wars going on. Yeah, on yeah. And Earth, Life on Earth is completely at stake here. We're running out of resources. We absolutely have to get this thing to work. And they end up 
causing they don't know what. They're suddenly lost in space, so to speak. <laughs> uh, you know, they're they're out there. Luckily, potentially. there's space spiders this time. I kind of like the moment, too, where they realize that the Earth is just gone. It just doesn't feel like I was watching a whole movie. I feel like yeah. I was watching a bunch of slapped-together pieces. And individual pieces are enjoyable, but it just really felt empty and hollow. Like, mm-hmm. when it was over, I felt like like I was cheated. Like, there was a, this was a waste of a Cloverfield movie. It was a waste of sort of the momentum that had been built off of 10 Cloverfield Lane. I don't think the next Cloverfield movie is going to instill much excitement in anybody. When it was over, I promptly went to bed and forgot about it. <laughs> you know, really. Right, and I, but that wasn't the way. Like, 10 Cloverfield Lane, that was a great John Goodman yeah, performance. It was, I, a, that was fun, a ripping movie. Twilight Zone uh, element to it. This was just a waste. Now, I will say, if you're someone who has somehow resisted watching it, it may not be your kind of movie. I think you could totally watch it. You can watch it without being connected to the Cloverfield universe. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that there are going to be some parts that seem really clunky, and you'll wonder, where did this come from? The ending will seem like it completely came out of nowhere if you've never seen the other movies. But that's not a fault of having not seen the other movies. It just is completely tacked on. Believe yep. us when we say Absolutely it has on. no benefit. It's like you were stale. <laughs> yeah, like keep falling off. So I would say it's not it's not great if you're a real sci-fi fan who particularly loves that like ghost in the spaceship kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's all right. There's better movies. Sunshine's a better movie. Event Horizon's mm-hmm. a better movie. Even Pandorum, I would say, is a better Pandorum, movie. Pandorum, I completely forgot about Pandorum. <laughs> not a bad movie. A better movie than this. Supernova, not a better movie than this. No, Supernova <laughs> will never be a better movie than any no, movie. No, no, no. I would even recommend, here personally, I would recommend uh, Solaris, uh, the original Solaris, although the remake isn't bad either, the one from 2002. Um, but kind of a waste. Glad Netflix took the took the opportunity to do this, but I hope the next time they do it is with a better mm-hmm. property, that they take the time yeah. to like pick something good. Now, the next weekend, after that came out, there was a movie called The Ritual, which just sort of like dumped oh, yeah. out of nowhere onto Netflix with far less fanfare than the Cloverfield movie. Uh, and yet? But I thought was a legitimately pretty good horror film. Far more satisfying. Far more satisfying, probably to the date, to date, one of the better horror movies I've seen so far in 2018. That may not be saying a lot, because 2018's been a little thin on the <laughs> yeah. horror movie front. Um, but, Chris, what do you think about this one? This is, like, four kind of... Four, yeah, yeah, mates out in the woods, buddies, yeah. like the kind of lads sort of thing. They're a bunch yeah. of British guys. Yeah, the premise is uh, this group of friends. There's originally five guys, but one of them got shot in like or stabbed to death um, during one of their like nights out, hanging out. They go to a liquor store and it gets robbed by like meth heads or something, and he gets killed. So they all go and take a trip, which is a trip to commemorate sort of their their brotherhood and his life, and. Uh, they decide to go backpacking and uh, get lost in the woods accidentally, and some crazy, crazy stuff goes down. So um, I actually like this. I would liken it to like a better version of like the Blair Witch Project. I think um, it does a lot of the same things, but it's it's still its own, definitely its own movie. But it's like a really like an actually somewhat scarier version of Blair Witch. Um, Blair Witch was effective when it came out, but I think this movie really kind of takes that concept of there's something out there and it's affecting the woods around you. It's not just like a creature; it's far more worse than that. Like, I think it it, it puts that um, it's probably the top of the pack in that kind of regard. I really liked um, 
the paranoia and the dread that gets built up as these guys realize there's just something off. I think when they go into a house and they find like this like uh, stuffed wooden thing upstairs <laughs> and they're like guys this is uh this is ancient witchcraft um maybe this is not the best place to stay the night and things start going haywire uh that's not a spoiler it's pretty early on in the movie but um yeah uh i liked i liked this movie a lot i thought it was uh it actually was effective for uh, a lot of the netflix originals haven't been terribly effective as of late i think this one definitely is um it's creepy it's fun um it's got some neat a neat creature in it, um, so and it's a great setting. Some nice cinematography too, staring out at the uh, the woods the guys are hiking in. Um, so I really liked it a lot. What do you think, Nathan? Yeah, I now Blair Witch, the Blair Witch Project, the movie that came out in nineteen ninety nine. There are some, there are definite similarities just thematically. Like I'm not saying film. that they're the same, movie. but I'm saying would, there's definitely yeah. thematically yes. The way they work is a little bit different. But what I will say, I think it's it's probably more um, comparative to say this is a better version of Blair Witch, the movie that came out in 2016. <laughs> because, yeah. so two things, Adam Wingard directed that one, mm-hmm. and, who did one of the segments of VHS, I was trying to remember that same aesthetic, David Bruckner, who did the did an episode of VHS, the episode with the um, fly, the, uh, the episode with the um, guys who go to the stag party. Mm-hmm. The, uh, he David Bruckner directed the ritual, so it's interesting. Two guys from VHS go off and do this. Is a better update of the concepts from the original Blair Witch than Blair Witch was. Yes, much better. And and and, and I feel like thematically, some of the stuff that he was that Wingard was trying to do in Blair Witch, he's doing here in a much more compelling way. Yeah. And one of the things that you and I said when we reviewed Blair Witch on this podcast was they should have just nixed. They either commit to or nix the uh, found footage aspect of it. You I remember, agree, yeah. and that that held that story uh-huh. back. And the other thing that held the story back was not committing to a concept for the evil and a concept for the mythology. It just went all over the place. This movie has no found footage aesthetic, so it can just it can just kind of be a movie. Mm-hmm. And then it also this is probably the thing I liked best about it. So they are. They're sort of out in like Scandinavia, like in the mm-hmm. Scandinavian wilds, sort of wandering around. And so they get to—I don't want to get into too much to spoilers—but they get to kind of bridge into a kind of different mythology than we're used to seeing in yeah. horror films. Like they kind of—that was the exciting. That was an exciting element, to right? And and they don't get there immediately. Mm-hmm. They sort of they let you kind of just luxuriate, if you will, in this weird misty mountain mm-hmm. wood setting, and they build the psychological. Terror a lot better than I agree in either of the Blair Witch movies. Mm-hmm. Like Blair Witch, oh, there's some rocks here arranged away. This one, they go into this, you know, they find this cabin, and there is literally like a headless, like <laughs> weird, almost like dryad style statue holding hammers in its hand or something. And antlers, like, antlers, and you're like, what is going on here? And then suddenly they pass out and lose time. Yeah, and it's just. Uh, it was compelling. The setting was compelling. The I wasn't completely sold on all the relationships, but there was some character building mm-hmm. going on yeah. there. Um, the main character, who is uh, uh, played by Rafe Spall, for who who is actually the son of Timothy Spall, I, they developed him well. He acted it well. I kind of wanted to see a little bit more development 
the story was a little bit thin in that mm-hmm. respect. I had a hard time liking a lot of the characters in terms of liking, but I don't think that was necessarily the point. There was a lot of putting them in the setting, but there was some character arc. There was some development of the characters. They felt like real people for the most mm-hmm. part. This, when the stuff starts going crazy in the woods, that's probably when it's like most effective, particularly yeah. like early on. There's moments. I watched it on the like uh, my wife and I were watching it on like a smaller television. I kind of wished I'd been watching it on the projector, or, <laughs> or or this would have been a movie that I think would have done well in the theater. Oh yeah, because there's moments when you can see something moving, or you'll catch mm-hmm. something out of the corner of your eye, and yeah. I just felt like I wanted to Tiny be closer to that. Too. Yes, yeah. and I feel like those things would have been more impacting, more visually mm-hmm. striking if I had been able to see them in that kind of form. Correct. Yeah. Uh, it, there's not a lot of spoiler to say there is a there is an ominous dark force in the woods. I think it's probably fair to say too that unlike some of these other films that we or stories that we've gotten, we get a definitive, clear answer to what's in the woods. Mm-hmm. And there's some creature. There's a creature element to the movie, mm-hmm. and there's some awesome creature design. I was really happy with the design at the yeah, end of the film. Like when yeah. he shows up, it was like that's a satisfying monster. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. To juxtapose against Cloverfield, I never really, I don't really dig this new kind of monster design with the stringy Cloverfield monsters, the stringy Super Eight monsters. They're just not my. <laughs> they're uh, like they don't feel distinct. I look at them. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember them later. You know, it's mm-hmm. or they all kind of look the same. The, mm-hmm. the, I love the Kong movie, but Kong kind of had the same problem. It's just a stringy lizard. Uh, it doesn't feel like it has an iconic, iconic sort of sense to it. Mm-hmm. This thing, looking at it, I mean, there's a lot to take in, but I felt like, hey, that's a monster. You know, absolutely. Like, that's, uh, yeah. So I, I really like it. There's an aspect as you head into the the third of the movie where. So you've got this kind of psychological horror story. At some point, you've got a monster movie. There's a third sort of subgenre that pops up where they start realizing there's other people in the woods too. Mm-hmm. I like that aspect of it. It's based off a book. I never read the book. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because there are elements. I don't know if you felt this way. Did you feel there were some elements? I felt like I wanted a little more explanation for what I was seeing. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Particularly, there's a moment where they find another cabin, and he goes up into the attic of this place. And what's up in that attic, I thought I understood, but I wasn't 100% certain. I mm-hmm. felt like that was one of those things where, like, I bet this has an explanation in the book, and they're just kind of letting us figure right. it out. Because I didn't feel very clear. I was like, I have a couple ideas about what's happening, but I'm not... I felt like a little bit of additional information might have made that seem creepier. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, Absolutely. it felt like Haunted House style, like, you're walking... You, oh, Here's something creepy, and then let's move to the next thing. Overall, I enjoyed it. It was a pretty solid movie. Yeah. I feel like it has some rewatchability. If you're someone who's looking for a good horror movie on Netflix, I would you, say this is, yeah. You definitely need to check it out, yeah. Yes. Now, the only thing that we did not say when we were talking about the um, Blair Witch comparisons is that the only Blair Witch movie that it's not better than is Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows, because, you know, that was a horrific masterpiece. <laughs> it was horrific. <laughs> I will agree with you there. My, my issue is I, I'm a fan of the original Blair Witch, yeah. But it's it's it, it's a thing of its time. It's also a very totally. specific kind of movie. Yeah. Um, the ritual, I think, is it, it, is satisfying as a more traditional horror movie, Absolutely. which the sequels to the Blair Witch were not. So, uh, I'm this pers- this particular director. Uh, I'm much more interested in him now because of this movie. Yeah, I'd agree. I think uh, I'll look out for more of his stuff. So, I mean, and there's we can keep talking about stuff that's on Netflix. There's tons of it, but. Uh, 
let's transition a little bit to some of the stuff we've been seeing in the theater. I think you and I have probably spent about one minute talking about this. Earlier this year, uh, first movie out of the bat at the theater was Insidious, The Last Key. Ooh. The Does it really deserve more than one minute of talking about? No, that's why we got to get this out of the way real quick. <laughs> so, if you're a fan of this, it is a series. This is the fourth movie, Ooh. Insidious. Uh, there was an original movie, what, 2011, which was a earnest and decent poltergeist knockoff. It didn't even try to pretend it wasn't a poltergeist knockoff. Uh, but it was fun, yeah. for the most part. I mean, there were things I liked about it, but it totally played up all the poltergeist analogies, you know. Here's a moment we've got to get the female pol- the female uh, inv- paranormal investigator to come in mm-hmm. with her sidekicks. I mean, it, it was beat by beat, but I think that was done on purpose. Insidious 2 was, like, all over the map. <laughs> it was at least a continuation to the original story. I was, the, um, I think, the most messy of all of the sequels. It's probably two. I, I'd agree, but there was a there was a certain bit of zany entertainment to his messiness. Like, there's a moment where the crazy witch is revealed to be like some cross-dressing oldster in the hospital, and it just <laughs> I just kept like blowing my mind of how ridiculous yeah. it was. It was, but there was a level of fun that just it wasn't existent. The third movie felt like they tried to grant to ground it. It's probably where we can mention that. Lynn Shea is sort of the star of the series. Now, having yeah. seen her in movies like Something About Mary and in uh, and she even had a a, a small role in uh, which of the movies was it uh, Critters? I think I saw her in Critters. Oh, really? I was like, oh wow, Lynn Shea's in Critters. But uh, Something About Mary and Kingpin are where I remember her from. <laughs> but she's she plays the psychic investigator in the first movie and in the second movie and. Uh, then the third movie, which is a prequel, and she's the star of that movie. And the movie was a little bit stronger dramatically for having her as a star. Mm-hmm. I just didn't find any of the ghost stuff interesting no. in the third movie. I actually don't find most of the ghost stuff interesting in the in any of these movies because of this conceit of the further, which is like that other dimension, yeah. like the world that exists beyond the light. Anytime you start to visualize that, you have problems. Remember, Poltergeist is very effective because we see things come through the portal, but we never see the other side, mm. except in very vague terms. Poltergeist 2, you get a full-on battle in the other world with an H.R. Geiger-designed monster, and it's just not that good. No. Uh, the further is even more cheap than that. It looks like I'm watching, like... <laughs> I'm just You're looking at the modern world, except that it's like everybody's got a, a thin layer of like gray paint on their faces. It looks like I'm watching after-hours <laughs> porn sets. Like, like red, low-key lighting, yes. really sparse decorators. There's a fog machine Soulless rolling up. people. Yeah, she's walking into someone out of eyes. I'm like, is the plumber in the next room? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the pizza delivery dude. I'm here to clean the pipes. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> But do you know what I mean? Yeah, and then the tiny exactly, Tim yeah. is blaring over the loudspeakers. So this fourth movie, to me, is by far the worst. Although it has the potential to maybe be stronger because it really is trying to hone in on her story. Mm-hmm. And it had a potential if you got... The problem is no one decided to write a story. It's the same old thing over again. To the point of almost like tedium. Would you Very agree? Much so. Like, I'm watching this movie and I, I want to see more about Lynn Shay and her and her, yeah. her estranged I, brother I like played by Bruce Davison. Yeah. I'm like, let's see more of that. I'm not a fan of Specs and whatever his name, the Tucker and Specs the, uh, or whatever the two the schlubby pals, Tucker and Dale, it? yeah, whoever they are, um, yeah, those characters had started to lose their luster extremely by this movie. But the one thing I'll say about it, did it feel to you like the the 
jump scare scenes were elongated to the point of ridiculousness in, in how long it took Absolutely. you to build. There was one scene where Lin Shay is in this dark kind of cubby space. All she has to do is pull a bag out and drag it out into the light and look at it. But she opens it up, and it's like a Russian nesting doll. She pulls out another suitcase. Yeah. She opens that suitcase. She zips it up. She opens another. And the whole time you know something bad yeah. is behind there. But you watch her go through like four suitcases. It, yeah. That this was is a ridiculous. complete waste. This is... This is the yeah. bottom, the bottom of the barrel, I think. So, well, yeah, we did our duty. We watched it at least. We watched it at least. Although I still haven't seen Winchester, I was more interest, interested in Winchester than this one. But well, Winchester is based on an interesting location and like with yes. crazy history. Although, sadly, so. didn't get a lot better review. And as Helen Mirren, but the reviews aren't really stellar on that one yeah. either. So, I'm waiting for our good ghost movie. There, there seem to be some interesting. Psychological thrillers on the on the horizon. Hereditary looks really interesting. That is the thing I'm most excited to see. I that think. looks like it's going to go a kind of w- the, the way of the witch. You and I are looking forward to a movie called November. Which I'm not going to say more about this. Just anyone who's listening nutty. to this, yeah. look up the trailer. I'm getting black I'm getting visions of the witch. Film. I'm getting visions of the turn horse. Uh, <laughs> lots of different, lots of different things. A field in England, a bit. A field in England, yeah. It, it very. It's going to be for a very art house audience. That looks cool. The the quiet is it called the quiet place? A quiet place. Something like. I'm that. not sure how to feel about that one yet. I still don't mm. feel like I have enough information. The fact that it's not directed by M Night Shyamalan is has me excited. Uh, yeah. Because it looks like the kind of it thing. It totally looks like, like one of those movies. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Let's talk Black Panther. Yes. Wakanda forever. Most of what you've probably heard, I mean, it's making a ton of money, which I'm very happy for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's legitimately a very good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a good well, movie. Well, you know what? We should talk about that because I, I know you have a certain level of exhaustion when it comes to superhero movies. Me being a fanboy, I'm more ready and willing to accept and enjoy certain elements of these movies, I think, than you because you, you get a little tired yeah. of them after a while. And that's true, certain. I think it's fair to say, I think we both usually walk out of them saying that was decent that was fun Almost, I think we, yeah, usually, similar, yeah. but I agree there sometimes there are certain elements that I'm just fed up with and you mm-hmm. and I know the one I'm talking about particularly superhero fist fights done yes. absolutely done with superhero fist fights but I agree there is definitely a tedium and I don't think I'm a, I mean I, I see what you're saying I don't think I'm alone in feeling that tedium I think yeah. you, the mileage is extended when you are a fan I'm just like of I've been waiting for so long to get this stuff going and seeing these massive Avenger movies with all these characters and things that I'm just excited to see all this stuff coming out. And you're, and you're mean, clearly not alone because yeah. Marvel is racking up the money. And Big and if I'm, if I'm honest about it, it's not... With me, I'm more fed up with DC's inability to seem to be able to get it together. Oh. And some of Marvel's movies where they feel like they're coasting, where they're just like connective tissue to get to... Avengers or I think they've broken that mold a bit. A li- well, yeah, and I, I think recently, like you, that stuff was more so like Thor two, Iron Man three. Yeah. I think, and and to be fair, like my, the the reviews that I've given, like Guardians of the Galaxy two, Spider Man, mm-hmm. Thor two, have all uh, Thor three have all been positive and good. Mm-hmm. I did, but yes, I agree that there is this little bit. It's it's also more the template issue now, which is like I feel like we're cycling through. A regular expected series of events, the false dawn, mm-hmm. the hero's got to do this, the, particularly with what would be normally an origin movie. Mm-hmm. You sit there with a checklist and there's no excitement, <laughs> yeah. there's no interest, you know what's going to happen next. You can't get away from that with superhero movies because they will always be a loop. Like, unless you plan mm-hmm. to kill your character off and keep them dead, mm-hmm. you know that 
we have to kind of be back where we started. Not completely. Be like Captain America series can throw throw a, a, a like a wrench in the gears and suddenly Hydra's taken out. You know, mm-hmm. you've got that. But at some point, Captain America's kind of got to still be in play. Yeah, something absolutely. like that. So what was kind of brilliant on Marvel's part was introducing Black Panther in Civil War mm-hmm. and sort of getting his... Basic beats. Yes, you know. like his his um, testing the waters out of the way. He's gotten that out of his blood. Like, where you have to have that, what's the personal motive that propels somebody? They got it completely out of the way in Black Panther without giving us much backstory about who he was mm-hmm. and who he is in terms of Wakanda, which is kind of smart because now we know the Black Panther. We already We've already got his origin story out of the way. This is more like information about Wakanda, which is probably mm-hmm. Wakanda is probably going to play a larger role in Infinity War oh, yeah, than Black time. Panther will. Mm-hmm. I mean, he will play a role but I think Wakanda is the pivotal element that you need to know about. Yeah. So, to me, that freed Black Panther up to play much more like a pulpy sci-fi movie, sci-fi adventure movie, than a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely, because it is, it is a superhero movie by definition, but it doesn't really play like one. Yeah, what's an MCU movie that ends up kind of being a world-building pulp pulp serial kind of, Mm -hmm. almost like a Flash Gordon, not like Flash Gordon movie, (laughs) but but that serialized sense of that kind of breathless, uh, gee whiz sort of Mm -hmm. feel to it a little bit. And I'll talk about this and I'll let you kind of uh, mention. Visually, I thought this one was like probably the strongest movie. Oh, yeah. The Marvel movies, I have always had an issue with how, for the most part... They have one visual palette that was established with Iron Man for the most part, up until Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy introduces something a little different. Somewhere around Doctor Strange, they started to at least start to play with let's give each movie its own visual identity a little bit. Like mm-hmm. I think I don't think you can argue that Doctor Strange. Doesn't Thor is a totally own. different visual identity now. You know, yeah, it's a little bit yeah. more like Guardians, but yes, it's it's a the the stylistic and the way that it's played with is different. Doctor Strange is the same kind of way. Spider-Man kind of feels more of a piece, but whatever. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's it's kind of in the Marvel Universe. But Black Panther is the first one where there's a real different visual identity. There's um, there's a scene relatively early in the film where you're in Wakanda, and it's taking place in front of a waterfall, and there's sort of... Oh, a that was moment. crazy. And yeah. I felt like, hey, I'm seeing something different. I'm seeing a new world. I'm seeing... Uh, a, a world that feels like it has depth and and He's dimension vibrant. to it. Yes. Yeah. And this is not a normal sight I'd expect to see. But that connected me more to the comics. In the comics, you'd sometimes get that. Like, oh, look at this great world. Like, mm-hmm. Wakanda, it's a different place. The Savage Lands, you know, not the Savage Lands aren't in the movie, don't hear them. But, like, yeah. this kind of, the splashed across the pages of the comic book would be this other world to explore. And I loved the visual texture for the most part of Black Panther it's mostly even the action scenes are a little different mm-hmm. for the most part you eventually are going to get to a fist fight but yeah. it's a little bit more interesting there's a little bit more stuff going on that's just mm-hmm. the visual element But so I'll, I'll turn it over to you but that in itself the visual element's far more tied into the story and the identity of the mm-hmm. characters like there's a lot of really cool cultural stuff going on in the film that I feel like sets it apart completely from the other Marvel movies. Yeah, the, vi- the visual palette is very rich and thick and vibrant and bold and colorful. Um, I thought, I mean, you know, I read some some stuff there talking about Easter eggs. I don't really think it's an Easter egg per se, but like this uh, a scene where they all are going to a, a club in uh, Korea, the three main, three of the main characters, and they're all wearing like a different colored 
uh, suit uh, or dress or whatever. And the director said, well, that's because that's the main three colors of, like, the African flag, you know, like, that's pretty cool. Like, like things like that that they mix in there. But um, that's actually a good way of describing what I was trying to get at is that there is an actual thought process yes. and a logic behind the way things are designed. They aren't totally. just designed. As much as I like the way Doctor Strange looked, half of the stuff was just trippy to look trippy. Mm-hmm. And it, the visual texture and the story weren't really, were like two separate entities. Totally different yeah. levels, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, uh, the, the the bold and bright and colorfulness of it really kind of blends into the movie and the story it's telling. Um, so, uh, I yeah, I was super in love with this movie. Um, I think it's probably one of my favorite Marvel movies. I feel like I say that all the time, but yeah, I think like, I, I noticed that we've been doing I'm that. Trying like, not to go back, and but I, they, think, I think they're getting better, honestly, at what they're doing. They are. I, I'm just going to put it out there, and I'm I'm always the skeptic. I don't think I'll be saying that about Infinity War Part One. Probably we'll not. Um, I honestly I was much more excited for Black Panther than Infinity War. To be fair, to be honest, yes, uh, me so, too. Um, but yeah, uh, this this tells a unique story. It's got a lot of, like you say, it's got some pulpy sci-fi in it. It's got some fun, um, like, 007 kind of spy stuff in it. Um, it's got some Shakespearean elements to a certain extent. Um, I, yeah, I just thought some it was... Lion King elements? <laughs> yes. Which I guess is still Shakespeare. So yeah, at the sense. beginning of the movie, they t- kind of tell the beginning and creation of Wakanda as a country. And I didn't notice this, but if uh, did you notice? Uh, I mean, I've seen it twice now. I'll probably go see it again. But it's uh, Killmonger and his dad talking about Wakanda at the beginning. He's telling his son the story, the beginning of the country. I didn't notice I did that the first that time. Up. So um, that kind of interesting puts a different context on it. I like yeah. it. A lot of nice world building to me. The texture and the feel. This is maybe going a little, maybe a little overboard. I don't know. You started to get into the texture and feel of a movie more in the line of Star Wars or or Indiana totally. Jones. Yeah. Like it was more that feel than your average like superhero. That's movie. absolutely like, right. It, it had breadth and depth. The other main thing that is, a, I mean, there's several things to talk about. Let's talk about the characters. And of course, you can't get around the fact, and nor should you, that this is this is a story with. African and African American roots mm-hmm. and the way it brings the story together, there's a real story here. There's also a real point here. There's ideas and concepts that are not just relevant to where we are, but that are sort of deeply human, which I don't think has really been in a Marvel movie with the the only time we've gotten into real sort of human elements dovetailing with a realistic story was probably the first Iron Man. I mean, like really. Like not that the others don't have mm-hmm. elements of that, but where there's a real sort of Character-driven story mm-hmm. at the forefront. I feel like it totally Iron... feels kind of like a weight for what he's been, what he does. Yeah, there, there's a character arc. The movie pivots off of a uh, a, a, a character's uh, inner change, as opposed to I'm a superhero now. Mm-hmm. Which, I, and that's not to discount the other movies. I don't think that's what the other movies were trying to do per se. You know, most of the other uh, Thor and Captain America, they were a little different. In, yeah, in 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 concept, but I feel like this one feels the most like what you would consider a realistic dramatic arc of mm-hmm. story, and that's not to say that the arc's the same. It's not the same as Iron Man, but I feel like there has a lot of dimension to to the characters and to the acting, and it is a very uh, those African elements aren't just, and those African cultural elements aren't just slapped on the movie, mm-hmm. but they also exist with an African American element, which are are two different pieces that sort of mesh together. And I thought that the movie handled that in a really 
nuanced way mm-hmm. that 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 led into every action scene that influenced every sort of event that was happening. It's still a it's still pulpy. It's still comic booky. Totally. But I felt here's another thing I really liked about it. And tell me what you think. But I felt like it was buoyant. It was fun. It was uh, it had a lot of pep and energy to it. But it's yeah, also like, um, go ahead. But it's also a serious story. Like it's it's telling a dramatically strong and in some places heavy story. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't get bogged down. Like you know, sometimes I feel like the comic book movies choose to either be light fluff, like mm-hmm. Ant Man or Guardians. There's nothing wrong with that. But like mm-hmm. they're fluffy and airy, and they have little to no substance. Even Thor, but you know that going in. You're just there to have a wild, yeah. fun, poppy ride. ride. Yeah. I guess what I'm really saying I like about this is it managed to have some of the dramatic heft that they want to have in their Marvel stories, yeah. but it it was just as fun and as exuberant as exciting as Guardians of the Galaxy. It has a positive feel to it. Yeah, even when dark stuff is happening. There's mm-hmm. darker elements in this than in some of the others. There's yeah. a lot more real-world hurt going on, I guess, mm-hmm. if you want to say. Absolutely. Yeah, it touches a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting topics and relevant topics for today for sure um but one thing that i just love more than anything else about this movie there's so many things to like about it but like you were starting to get into the cast cast is fantastic excellent like best active marvel movie hands down oh my goodness like all the characters i think about it i can't think of anybody who wasn't really putting their best effort forward um honestly i think no. that no every and and, and well written for the most part. Even a small, most small roles were like well, yeah. well conceived, well written. All the um, side characters are characters I gotta see in more Marvel movies. Like they have just some of the best side characters in this movie. Um, aside from even the main ones, um, I think the one the one mistake that they possibly might have made was getting rid of one of the characters um, that I would love to see in other movies. But what can you do? You know, um, they really. Uh, I, yes, I, think they, I know. I know what you're talking. I about. I want to say it, but I don't want to say it because I don't want to spoil yeah, anything for anybody. But you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Um, and again, in all in all my cast, with the exception of two guys, which I the joke online yeah. is that Martin Freeman and uh, Andy Serkis, who was you know Andy Serkis was Gollum and Martin Freeman was Hobbit. So I said, oh, they're the two Tolkien white guys. Yeah, in this right. Movie. That's but, hilarious. Um, I, I cannot take credit for that one, but. But the way they worked into the story is effective and works. And yeah. Andy Serkis is nuts. It's totally, like, totally nuts. And I, we talk a little bit about the villains. Yeah, the cast is great. Uh, and they, There is they no together. more badass woman in Hollywood right now than Denai Guerrero. Okay, and, and let's talk about her. What is impressive is she's a strong, fierce warrior who is, is it the, whose primary goal is to help bring this community and this kind of culture together and kind of trying to help the figurehead sort of mm-hmm. which isn't in that description isn't that far away from uh, her char- her character on The Walking Dead Michonne thanks yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cut that part out yes because I can't look that that ignorant but isn't that if you think about the elements of who Michonne is and the character here in Black Panther technically they're similar but she makes them completely different people. She does. Like you don't think of Michonne while watching this film. No, I didn't not at, at all. all. But they're but you could see how they're kind of spiritual sisters in a sense. I mean, she plays the the badass warrior woman element to a T 
at the same time, she's a tender and loving woman, who, you know, and she she uh, grasps the humor of all these situations. Like, she goes a full gamut um, as but, a character, But really. if you think of most of our male action stars, when they play a character that's that similar on paper, mm-hmm. they play it mostly the same. Yeah. I mean, not always, but a lot of cases. It, it's really cool to see someone play a character who... Who could she could have taken Michonne and played her here, and that'd have been fine. Yeah, but she doesn't. No. I guess I'm saying that's a strength totally of a really good actress. On that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o was really good yeah. too. Uh, Chadwick Boseman. I liked the fact that his Black Panther in this movie is different than his Black Panther in Civil War, but in the same way that a guy who's had a little bit of time to consider some really like life changing things that mm-hmm. happened to him. It, there's not much time has elapsed. I mm-hmm. mean, it doesn't seem like much time at all has elapsed between Civil War and this movie. I don't know all the Marvel like architecture of timelines, but it doesn't feel like that much time has passed. I believe if, it's supposed to be around a week, something yeah, about that. Yeah, not much yeah. time. But you, he is sort of different, yeah. you know, he because what happened to him in Civil War was supposed to be transformative. So Clearly it's kind of neat, yeah. neat to see him... Like, yeah, you can see how this guy is different than that guy and playing those elements. I think most of the actors... I, the one slight disappointment, I felt like um, Daniel Kaluuya's character, the Daniel who, who is, yeah. uh, he's up for an Oscar for Get Out, he's a great actor, I feel like his character shortchanges him just a little bit. Just a little, yeah. Uh, I feel like they had him and they didn't quite know what to do with him. He's only He's one of the few characters that feels more like a chess piece than a character. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not saying that it, it doesn't diminish the movie, but he plays it so strongly that it just sort of brings that flaw to light. Like, you can mm-hmm. see him pressing to do more with it. He's clearly supposed to be more three-dimensional than they made him. Yeah, and you can see him trying to get into that, and mm-hmm. often when you have a good actor in a role that isn't quite well written, they bring that to light because <laughs> they're constantly pushing at it. And I feel like you could see that with him, and like, you guys need to give this guy some more space. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so... Uh, and even smaller roles like Forrest Whitaker, like really good, mm-hmm. like um, well well conceived. Uh, I, I could have used some more Angela Bassett as well. Like, oh I, yeah, totally. Like she's another one who probably is very shortchanged. In fact, when she's, she's there, she's yeah. very commanding on the screen. Like. Yeah, and it, and you, and you sit there and you wonder. That's where I kind of get to sometimes with the Marvel. Like most of the times with Marvel, I'm complaining about the fact that they hid the villain under makeup, which we'll get to in a minute, which isn't a problem here, but. Here, why you hire this strong actress and you don't give her... She doesn't get a scene that's, that, that the others get big, meaty scenes. She doesn't get a scene. Mm-hmm. I, I kept waiting for it. I was like, did it end up on the cutting room floor? Right. Like, yeah. where is it? I mean, even Andy Circus gets a couple of creepy, <laughs> like scenes where you're like, yeah, okay, go, Andy. But um, uh, let's talk about the villains because that's almost always where I have an issue. Uh, which is that the villain, even when they may be compelling, they just feel like they're more underwritten than everything. Traditionally, yeah, like all um, these movies, it's been like that. Uh, sometimes you'll get like a Dark Knight or something where oh, the, but but even there, so much of that comes down to what Heath Ledger is doing mm-hmm. with with the character, not necessarily completely how it's written. But this this is very different, I think. Um, so you have two villains. One of them is Andy Serkis, which is more what you expect out of kind of a side villain. Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say he's a side villain. Yeah, sure. I don't think they ever pretend Nobody that he's is not. Nobody is anticipating him to be the main bad guy. Yeah. Michael B. Jordan plays uh, Eric Killmonger. They, yeah. you know, everyone's got an awesome name in the <laughs> Marvel Universe. They explain why why this name is there. It's not like his dad named the Killmonger or something. 
I loved every single thing they did with this character. Yes, and the, because at, at times he wasn't just 100% constant evil or anything like that. He was a very human character. He expressed what he had to express, but he didn't go into long speeches about things. He just was what he was, and he played that character perfectly. They do, and he's a great actor. I am so excited for HBO has Fahrenheit 451. Oh. And he and 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 Montag, the main protagonist, is played by Michael B. Jordan. Nice. Michael B. Jordan and Michael Shannon are the stars of Fahrenheit 451. Awesome. So um, we have to get HBO for that month or whatever, <laughs> just because that's going to be good stuff. I so the, what a great casting choice, but and what a great casting choice here with with, with Killmonger. He almost he almost like capsizes the movie a little bit because I feel like he's so good mm-hmm. that like. You find yourself rooting for him a little bit. You well, you find yourself really disliking him. Yeah, feeling sympathetic to his cause uh-huh. and feeling legitimately empathetic for him as a person. Uh-huh. Uh, the way they tie it too into some of those cultural aspects and those elements. It's I don't want to get too much, but you have this element of a person who has been crushed by a certain system of thought. Retreat, trying to do something revolutionary by adopting the same system of thought that broke. Yeah, and that's Shakespearean tragic. Mm-hmm. But the way they handle it, there are there's a scene in this film that is almost unlike anything I've seen in a Marvel movie, where we have we've got there are like supernatural elements of this story in the same way there were not to the level that there were in Thor. So like this most mm-hmm. of this is futuristic technological. I don't think it's too much spoiler to say we do have some interludes with like the spirit world. If mm-hmm. you want, want to say, I was hoping Doc would pop up in one of those. But, but, that, that might have, <laughs> that's a, a separate point. But like the 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 what we see in this world is about what I expected for the most part. But there is a scene where, and most of the time we are seeing the heroes sort of interact with it. But there is a point where we see Killmonger interact with this other plane of existence, and um, and there is a scene where he and another character have a discussion it's it's essentially of he and his father and man what a really powerful scene like yeah. the way it's not just the way it's acted but what they're saying to each other like when they're talking and you know there's this kind of gist of well we are lost why are we who who made us lost mm-hmm. and the film doesn't really resolve that no. <laughs> conflict it, but it's very touching in the middle and you've already seen this guy do a lot of heinous stuff yeah, mm-hmm. you see at this moment the kind of core of who he is, his li- and, and and like I was with him enough that I didn't even even really register. I was watching fight scene towards the end, you know, <laughs> punching scene. I was in, I was in it, mm-hmm. so to speak. So yeah, it's a good movie. I'm looking forward to seeing it a second time. Uh, I think it benefited. You mentioned like Doc Strange, like having pop up. <laughs> this movie almost this this movie itself. In the same way that Wakanda is walled off from the rest of the world, this movie, Ryan Coogler has kind of walled this movie off from almost, Total, almost any totally, yeah. any other Marvel references. Even the Stanley cameo is a little <laughs> bit downplayed. Yeah. Like they're like, let's get this out of the way early. Yeah, uh, it's fun, but I mean, it's like and a lot to it. There's mm-hmm. a couple references so you can track it, and the after scene, you know, the the like credit sequences. Mm-hmm. There's one, but it's very kind of like. Get it, like, get it yeah. and go. In fact, the more pivotal scene is all story related to Black Panther. You know, that's what I like. Mm-hmm. The the main credit sequence where you kind of, have a, you know, is all Wakanda related. It's not yeah. really, you don't have two scenes that are trying to tie it back into something else. So I think that was stronger. 
made the film stronger. Absolutely, they they stick within um, that particular world they built, and you're absolutely right. I think it doesn't make it a, a stronger for just focusing and really honing that down. I will say the one my favorite one of my favorite things in any Marvel movie I've ever seen was they have a chase sequence in, in Korea early on in the movie. And I was grinning from ear to ear that entire sequence. That was a good thing. And I went to see it again. Again, I couldn't help myself. It was so great just watching it. I was grinning from ear to ear. You've heard me say a couple times <laughs> on the podcast about uh, feel like a scene is ripped straight from the comics. Oh, they yeah. had several of those in this film. That was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, kind of the scene early in when they kind of, like, I was having flashbacks of some of the really well done, like, Phantom comic strips when he's up in the trees yeah, and they, that when the awesome. mercenaries are kind of look up and he's just crouched up in the tree like what a great kind of establishing shot like kind of back to like some of the first times you saw Batman on the rooftops in the mm-hmm. Batman movies love that stuff um, but it's good it's really really good uh, you know another actor or actress I really need to give credit to Letitia Wright who's yeah. basically playing the most awesome version of Q you've ever seen yeah. also do you not feel like watching a lot of the way this was done I feel like someone finally kind of looked at like what guys like Whedon and stuff had done on television with like Firefly and uh, and Buffy mm-hmm. about how you build teams and groups together mm-hmm. and found a way to translate that to a feature-length movie. Maybe better than even Whedon has done in the Marvel movies. Like, I felt like they nailed that in a shorter period of time. You're right, Like, yeah. they was like right off running. I was like, hey, this is the kind of interaction and like contextual relationships that you have in those kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. You think about the first shots of like Serenity movie where you're seeing everybody operate on the ship. Like they just jump right into it. They have their on a mission and you see everyone's role, but you also get a sense of their emotional re- relationship mm-hmm. to everybody. And I was like, they don't do that very well unless they've got enough space to do it. You know, mm-hmm. like a TV where, hey, I've had a couple episodes to introduce you to this or that. And I was like, I think they're, they're finally picking up on how to do that well. I would like to say, this is my final little comment, and this is just a prediction that will probably be ripped apart by other people, but if Tony Stark is the one that has to go, if they get rid of Tony after, like, We're Infinity talking War Infinity War. This is like all speculation fallout, on my part. Yeah. The fallout. Since in comics they have had his replacement as uh, uh, Ironheart, uh, the young African-American girl in an Iron Man costume, essentially, she's taken over for Tony in the comics. I would love to see Shuri as Ironheart in the future Marvel movies. That would be fantastic. Do it. I say yeah. do it. I would be good with it. I mean, it would be an interesting thing. You don't even, have to, nice kill, you don't even have to kill Tony. Just sideline him for a while. Heck, she could make her own suit because she's smart. Well, the, and see, you know? see, that's what I was going to say. Forget that. They don't need Iron Man. That's, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to see her go to Iron Man. Let's see another Black Panther movie. But, um, yeah. So, yeah, we're... We're spiraling out like usual. Um, let's talk a little bit about Annihilation, and then let's yeah. move in and talk. You know, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up the Oscars. Before we do that, though, let's deal. We've had this sit in front of us the whole time. I kind of <laughs> forgot we had this. Um, Chris was very gracious, and last week brought over a bag of candy. You're going to talk about this. I'm holding this oh, bag yeah. of candy. This is like homemade candy. Not you did no, homemade yeah. it, but it's a, like a custom-made Special, candy or yeah. something. This is a shop I, I was stumbling around on YouTube one night. And I saw this video. They're like, hey, look, we're making TARDIS candies from scratch. And it's like these long strips of candy. And the inside they have an image of like a TARDIS from Doctor Who. These got a little smashed, it looks like, or smushed a bit. It looks but, like it's in the middle of traveling through time. Hey, there you <laughs> go. It's, yeah. it's a little wavy, a little <laughs> hazy. And, of course, they call but, this uh, police box candy because they can't call it uh, 
part of this case, I doubt they have licensing. But there's a company called Lofty Pursuits, I think, in Florida. And they make this stuff on uh, vintage uh, Victorian-era candy machines. And just watching the process of them making the candy, like, as a giant block with the image in the middle and squishing it down and creating these tiny little things. These videos are on cool. YouTube? Yeah. So I will have those, some of those in the show notes so you can see it. I'll also cool. give you a, a picture of this. What it looks like to me and what made me excited, I haven't tried it yet, but I opened the bag just uh, tonight here over on the podcast, is what it looks like is broken up pieces of old-fashioned candy sticks. Yes. So I don't, I even see the white line running through. A, a, a lot of people are probably familiar with old-fashioned, like, peppermint sticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my favorite candy, my grandmother was big into, like, those old-fashioned candy sticks. Yeah. And they would come in, like, different flavors of lime, and you'd have, like, you'd even, like, you got real crazy, you might have rhubarb. Yeah. But, uh, and, and I don't know, do we have a flavor on this one? Looks like blueberry, uh, maybe? I think they said this was black, I believe this is blackberry. Whoa, smell but... it? That's blackberry. Oh yeah, it smells great. It, they, uh, they, like you say, this is uh, this is like a hard candy for an older hard candy. It's not like one that's going to last really long, but it is pretty tasty. I've had yeah, but our, our ours outside the packers are already a little sticky here. <laughs> but uh, so this is Lofty Pursuits, yeah, and this is www.pd.net public display. This excuse public me, display. public displays of confection. Yes. Very nice, and this is the doctor. I will say, I will say the the you be careful when you order from there because. When I did order, it was like six weeks before I got the candy because they had made, foolishly, some kind of <laughs> Tide Pod-looking candy to go up with that Tide Pod challenge. That did you order were... Tide Pod candy? No, I didn't. Okay. I was just like, I saw, I was like, that's ridiculous. Let me order some candy. And apparently that went viral and they had so many So they were too busy making Tide Pod candy. That yeah, might be where our police box will kind yeah. of smash. But on the back, it, back it does say police box. It's tastier on the inside. Well, let's so find that out. Uh, whenever Doctor is. Who comes back, you can get some of this. It's pretty good. It's it's tasting the same. If you're a fan of hard candy, mm-hmm. what what is neat about it, and if you're a fan of like lo- lollipops, uh, is that the middle section where the Tardis is is where like most of the blackberry flavor is. Mm-hmm. So you got some on the outside, and then you got the center, and just running your tongue along, you get like all the flavor out. So it's like really. The center of this piece of candy is very, like, flavorful. Mm-hmm. So, but because they're little pieces, you're getting all of it kind of at one time. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, it's pretty it's intense. intense. It's yeah. really good. Um, they have all these other old kinds of candy, like humbugs and all these different little things. It's pretty cool. It's very flavorful. Like, still, when you get the center of it, it's very, um, like a Jolly Rancher times like five. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Do you agree? Like I would I, agree. Yeah. I was trying to think it's of pretty concentrated. Yeah, concentrated flavor. And if you are a candy fan, there's a there's a little bit of sour in there with the sweet, mm-hmm. like like tangy maybe more than sour. But let's say at least check out one of their videos because it is pretty neat to see the process on how they yeah. do it. I mean, to be to be fair, to be in all honesty, if you're if you're going for it, it's cool. That the police box is in there. <laughs> I don't know that I would have guessed that this right. was Doctor Who candy. I was a little disappointed by that because they, they, the pictures they had on the website were much more like like a Doctor Who TARDIS box. And I, I, and when you do it this way, because what they mm-hmm. have done is essentially taken this this image, the whatever the mold they're using, and have shot it through the center of the candy stick and then broken the candy stick up. Oh, it's even crazier than that. I mean, I'm they, just uh, going by what it looks like they've done. It goes all the way through the center. It starts as a big hunk okay. of candy. And they're like, okay, we'll put this chunk here of blue and this chunk here of white, and they roll it up into this big, massive, like, Tootsie Roll almost, and it's nice. huge and molten hot. 
and they just keep rolling it out and rolling it out and rolling it out until it makes these really thin, long strands of stuff, and they have to wait until they're cool enough to break into pieces. It's pretty neat. So I feel like with all of that considered, it's not surprising that probably somewhere along the line... I will say, I mean, the thing is, I did order also some, like, root beer barrels for Mm -hmm. our friend Jason Swam, and the picture on there was a little more clear. You could really tell it was our root beer mug, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know what happened with these ones. This one does look much better, yeah, but um, I I think it's kind of a neat little thing I don't think I'm going to share these with the children. I'm keeping these. That's right. You brought plenty of root beer barrels. (laughs) Different root beer barrels, but plenty of those for them. Mm -hmm. So, Lofty Pursuits, again, www.pd.net. And uh, we'll put some videos up so you can see what they look like. Um, Let's talk Annihilation. All right. Not as a general concept, but as a film. (laughs) Uh, This came out last weekend. Natalie Portman is a star. So, another cool thing. With with uh, Black Panther, you know, one of the big elements and this kind of selling points is this idea of can you sell this movie with a black cast? And, and it, not just that, but a centrally, like, African and African-American-centered mm-hmm. storyline. And have it do really good box mm-hmm. office, be really... And I feel like there's a good opportunity here for people to really look at this, see what works, and realize that people do want to see these stories. Mm-hmm. And there are great science fiction stories out there. People like Octavia Butler. There are tons of great authors out there who, in the past, wrote and are writing and are creating art. And, and, and these stories are out there to tell. People need to start taking chances on them. So I feel like Black Panther kind of does that. Interesting thing about Annihilation is we have a story. It's based on a book by Jeff Vandermeer. And interesting thing about being based off of it is it's based off of it in the same way that The Shining by Stanley Kubrick is based off of Stephen mm-hmm. King's The Shining. But if you read the book and see the film, they are fundamentally different animals completely. I know why, too. I read an article from the director, and he said that he was doing the book intentionally. We're talking about Garland here, right? Mm-hmm. With Okay, and Correct. I understand. He said the book was so dreamy, uh, just kind of like a dreamlike experience, that he wanted to make the movie based off of his almost like dreams of what the movie should be. So he wrote it intentionally and directed it to be intentionally not just like the book, but like a, a dream-like experience of like maybe you had a nightmare after you read the book or something, but like his own experience on film rather than exactly doing it as it is in the book. And I think that honestly, with this kind of material mm-hmm. and true, I think, of Stephen King's The Shining as well, when you have this kind of material... That often renders a better product. I think that makes the... Jeff Vandermeer's book was already probably very hard to film. It was going to be challenging to Mm -hmm. film. Trying to figure out how to film it, most filmmakers would have gone the way of trying to find a way to explain it, to couch it in Mm -hmm. some sense of, like, understanding. Mm -hmm. And instead, he goes that more... He embraces the dreamlike nature of the story, but takes it in his own direction. I think that's what makes it... I love the fact that I was seeing an interpretation of it, but I also was sitting here expecting them to hit certain beats, you know, Mm -hmm. that did certain elements. I'm like... In fact, even why the, the the movie is titled Annihilation is completely different than why the book was. And like, you realize that you're like, wow, I'm definitely like in a different world here. I, I'm you know I'm on uncertain ground, which is hard. Like you've got this story that's about mystery. It's about being kind of uh, in, absorbed into the unknown, if you will. I guess it's fine to say you know the basic plot involves uh, Natalie Portman's character is a biologist whose husband has gone off on a military uh, kind of 
mission and he comes back. She doesn't know where he is. He's gone for a long time. He comes back and then kind of is acting strange and promptly sort of goes into a coma. I think that that's fine to say. We What we realize is that he was in a place that is, uh, in, he was in a area, a territory in Florida that has basically become walled off because of its exposure to what we actually know in, in the film is kind of portrayed directly as a result of a object from space crashing into a lighthouse. And then you have something that they kind of refer to as the shimmer. There's this sort of, it looks like the blob has just sort of taken <laughs> over, right? But it's a, it's a kind of weird, hazy, murky mm-hmm. sort of, looks like the Stargate or something. And there's everything on this side of the shimmer and then everything on the other side. And mm-hmm. the other side is sort of unknown territory now because something, the, the reason there's the shimmer is there's a weird refraction of light. But what's happening inside the shimmer is, is the world is changing. Mm-hmm. And... Dramatic ways. Yes, that affects plant life, that affects affects human life. The refraction isn't only happening to light, but to go back to kind of what I was saying about, okay, we made the point about Black Panther with its with its all like black cast and everything. This is a sci-fi movie that is about kind of it has elements of survival horror, elements of sort of expedition, and it's an all-female mm-hmm. cast. A yeah. strong cast of female characters and and it's not an all-female cast. I mean, we have male characters, Oscar Isaac's in there early on. But the meat of the film, once we get into the actual journey that takes place in the film, all-female characters. Yep. And well-written, well-devised mm-hmm. characters. And, um, in fact, it took me a while to realize uh, Tessa Thompson's in the film and realize it was Tessa Thompson from who played Valkyrie in yeah. Thor. <laughs> uh, completely, a completely different totally kind of character. character yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee is here. She's, she's doing nice work. Uh, Natalie Portman's really good. I really liked her I a lot. Still I love think, Natalie yeah. Portman. Yeah, I, I I always have. I it's hard sometimes. Like when you see her in a kind of second rate movie without mm-hmm. thinking back to like the prequel, the Star Wars prequels. But when you give her something, no, to no, shine no. In, there's prequel Natalie Portman and there's Black Swan Natalie Portman. Well, ice cap from Natalie Portman from that on like, is yeah, where I really but got into. There, there have been other. We, you probably just don't remember, or probably didn't see them. There's been a couple of Natalie Portman movies where no, it's there like have. This I just mean like things. Yes, my point is the Black Swan, like psychological sort of headspace. She's good in those kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. I don't think she gets enough of that kind of work. Mm-hmm. I think I. We've been back and forth about Mother. I, I might have liked Jennifer Lawrence too, but I wonder what Mother would have been like with Natalie Portman in the starring role. That's um, an interesting question. So just throw that out there. But what doesn't matter because I'm glad she's here and I'm glad Jennifer Lawrence was there. But this is, um, I. It's a very strange film. It is. It's just a weird movie. It's intended yeah. to be a weird movie. I think if you see the trailers, you realize it's a weird movie. It's weirder than some people are going to like. I mm. think. Uh, here's something I think makes it sort of extra challenging. People. There is an audience for this kind of strange film. I think people will get into this argument. People who really loved it. I loved it. I think mm-hmm. you loved it too. Oh, yeah. It's a it's, it's a, a really cool yeah. movie. But there's something about it that I like, but I think is going to cause some issues. It's just that this changes tones a lot. <laughs> frequently. Like, it changes yeah. tones frequently, and when he does it, it does it... I don't want to say... Not changing tones like so drastic like the whiplash, but when it commits to a certain genre feel... It really commits to it, but it won't be afraid to jump into a totally different kind of movie. I don't mean thematically. I mean the the tone, the tempo, the feel mm-hmm. of it. You will be watching a slow, kind of melancholy, <laughs> like sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. Something like a lot of this movie resembles Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, 
which is a really long, slow Russian film about a bunch of guys on their way to a strange area, potentially infected by paranormal or extraterrestrial activity. Mm -hmm. Lots of, and, and when they get there, things get kind of surreal and trippy. Uh, it's got stuff in common with Tarkovsky's Solaris. A very slow moving, very strange. Even some like Matango Attack of the Mushroom people yep. are kind of going on some strange, <laughs> very creepy like fungus and swamp life and stuff going on. And that movie, sometimes it'll turn into suddenly a hardcore gory monster movie. Yeah. Like like schlocky. Really almost. Hardcore, yeah. I don't want to say it's not like schlock, but like the kind of scene <clears throat> you would see in a schlocky monster movie, mm -hmm. but really scary, really intense. So someone who's there enjoying the melancholy sci-fi might be like, what did I just get into? Yeah. And then there is a point. I don't think this is... It's wrong to say It goes straight 2001 trippy. Totally. Like, yeah. way out there to the point where, you know, it's like you, you're you on a trip. Uh, it, it is other way to say. Yeah, I mean, yeah. light show and the whole deal. Um, the, the end credits are just, you know, nuts. I could just sit and watch those end credits because they were just beautiful. Right. Like, bizarre. Um, I remember hearing that, like, when 2001 came out, that they, like, the theaters would be packed out, and then the hippies would come in and just lay down <laughs> on the floor and look up at the movie and, like, far out, man. So there's some of this in that. You get kind of feels of, like, Darren Aronofsky. We've mentioned him already. The Fountain, stuff like that. Totally. There's a lot of that there. There's a lot of the same feel that was in Ex Machina. Like, mm -hmm. a lot of questions about existence and what it means to be human and stuff like that. Um I like that the movie wasn't that grounded in a in a necessity to be about like this is the the interpretation of the film. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't think that was necessary to enjoy it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and it's it's something that is very uncommon in the films these days. And once in a while, when you run across it, it's just very pleasing. And like this is something that you have to experience. I'd say several times and just kind of unpack it slowly and I'm excited to go it. back and see it again yeah and I don't think it's going to be out that long the last unfortunately uh, I don't think it's yeah I think it's unfortunately not so get out if you are in and this is one you should see on the, the, yeah. the big screen it's it's kind of problematic because I heard that like Paramount who keeps making these like these kind of like really challenging movies and I was like what have we done you know and they'll sell them off somewhere that this has been sold off and Netflix actually it may even be I don't know if now like it's releasing on Netflix in other areas, not here, but like overseas. in other countries overseas. It's going right to Netflix, which is kind of a shame. I think it really this one stand. If you're hearing this and you have ability to go out and see it in a theater, and you, you even have any inclination towards this kind of a movie, I would say go see it. If Definitely. you like sci-fi, you know I think you're going to find something in it to enjoy. I loved it. I'm looking forward to seeing it again a second time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really one, I think, to kind of ex to experience. There are good people, it's just not going to be their cup of tea. Absolutely. I would say don't go into it. Go into it to experience it. Don't go into it to try and, like, figure it out. It's not... So, yeah, you're not going to... It's gonna, not that kind of yeah. thing. But there, there's some really cool imagery in it. There's some creepy moments. Two guys... Some I, very heartfelt moments. Yeah, that's true. Uh, one of the things that doesn't get, like... We everyone talks about like certain directors that are very have very strong influence like David Cronenberg, David Lynch. But she but most people never try to blend those two things together. <laughs> Annihilation kind of mixes some Cronenberg <laughs> with some Lynch yes. and gets away with it. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, that's fair. I don't. I I think that's hard. That's two great tastes that don't always go great together. <laughs> Because uh, you got some body horror stuff here too. Oh, yeah. I guess I mean there were pretty pretty hardcore. Is. There was one. There was one scene where I was like, "That's nasty." <laughs> um, but that's not the that doesn't that is not the carrying tone of the film. The carrying tone of the film is not gross gore. 
Mm-hmm. It's not. It's, sometimes it's cerebral. Sometimes it's not. It's there's a lot going on in it, and I I feel like it does reward additional viewings because of that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think we will be seeing it up for an Oscar next year. <laughs> Sadly, but it is pretty. It was certainly. It's going to be. Better. It's going to have staying power. I think in a niche in a niche moment. Like totally. Um, we're going to be talking probably in a separate podcast about this, but just yesterday, Chris. Dark City became 20 years old. Wow. And that's a movie that, uh, you know, I I wanted it to have more cult appeal than I think it has, but it has a decent amount. It's got got a a reasonable, a healthy kind of cult following. It'd be cool to see that grow over the years. I always thought it was going to get a little bigger than it did, but um, I think Annihilation will have that sort of cult following. Like, I I think it will develop. It might take it a little bit of time, but I think it's going to stick around... um, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised to see it ultimately be a movie that people return to more often than some of Garland's other movies, Sunshine, which is a good movie and mm-hmm. has a kind of base uh, base to it, Ex Machina, which is a really good movie. But I think I think both of those movies they were more talked up when they were released. They haven't quite they haven't quite garnered that. You know, people mention like, oh, yeah, that was a good movie, but I, I feel like Annihilation has the opportunity to become a cult classic, maybe mm-hmm. more so than than these movies, but. So, let's let's kind of finish this out and talk a little bit about um, uh, the Oscars. Which my favorite science fiction movie, or fantasy, or horror movie for that fact, movie of twenty seventeen is not on this best picture list. Which to me was Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Like just straight up, two 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 movies I absolutely think should be in this list of ten. Best Picture movies. I'll just go read them very quickly. Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, which is one of the genre films, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, Shape of Water, and then Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Blade Runner absolutely deserves a spot on there. Yeah. Really I've seen all of these films, and there's some of these that I like. I love Spielberg, but The Post, it, it's just thrown on there, I think, because of its... Uh, topical nature. Exactly. It's not a very yeah. good movie. It's a glorified like Oscars, TV movie. Like the Oscars now is very much politically motivated. Yeah. I think everybody pretty much knows that. Lady I, Bird's a really good movie. Uh, I, the uh, acting in it's great, but I wouldn't put that movie here either. I think Blade Runner is a stronger movie than most of what's I'm, on here. I'm personally offended the little hours aren't on there. So the little hours. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the little hours? It was nutty. Uh, it something. was crazy. <laughs> that was a mess. That was a mess. Aubrey Plaza will literally make any movie. <laughs> literally, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a whole other podcast. Maybe we should let that be. Yeah. <laughs> there were some strange cameos in that. John, Very. John C. Riley and uh, who else? Um, was it Alison Brie was in that too? Totally. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, um, and, um, I'm interested you saw it. I felt like no one else had seen that movie. No, I really, actually I really wanted to. I thought it would look, look like it had potential. Um, what's the dude from Portlandia? I keep forgetting. Yes, name. that's the one. For, um, he plays Frank, like the um, bishop. Coming yeah, uh, Fred, uh, Fred Armistead. Armistead. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. He... He kind of stole the show a little yeah, bit. Like, his good. responses to things were sort of priceless. Um, that's not a movie for everyone either. No, <laughs> not at all. If you're listening to this, probably, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, of these films, I think Blade Runner 2049 should be here. I also think a smaller movie that was one of my favorite genre movies, uh, in a sense, was A Ghost Story. That was really good. Um, yeah. And I I loved that movie. I thought it was it's definitely more of an indie movie. It definitely had that kind of feel of something like a Tree of Life or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I thought it was fantastic. I, I believe it's better, again, than most of the movies on here. Of the movies that are here, it's cool to see Dunkirk there. Dunkirk was really well done. Uh, I, I think that's fair because I really think uh, that movie captured a moment in time and the feel of that moment in time of desperation. and It did. And one of the reasons I want to bring it up is Dunkirk, I don't know if we talked about this um, on the podcast, Dunkirk is it's Christopher Nolan. He's primarily done genre films. It's totally unlike anything he's ever done. It is and it isn't in the sense that he's found a way to make a... To take the structure of a science fiction film, he plays with time he does. and its relationship yeah. to things in the same way you would play with time in a science fiction movie, but it's not. It's, yeah. He finds a way to tell a terrestrial, earthbound, and actual historical story without... The, don't get me wrong, this doesn't have science fiction flourishes in its, no. story, in its story, but in its the way he tells the story... Time is fluid in the same way it would be in a sci-fi mm-hmm. film where you could time travel. That's correct. Yeah. It, it, some of the landscapes and some of the interactions feel like if you were telling a story about soldiers on an alien planet, but they totally aren't. You know, there's a lot of, like, the way he tells a story is the same way that, a, that someone might tell a sci-fi story. So, but he deals with completely realistic elements, mm-hmm. you know. So, to me, I was watching, I was like, oh, wow, it almost feels like a science fiction movie, even though... It, it, it is. Yeah, it does. Uh, you're absolutely right. He does play with the time like you would in a sci-fi movie. But uh, I don't know. That movie really uh, was special to me. I like that. Yeah, I, I. Well, yeah, I think it should be here. I'm just mentioning. I'm looking at the list of the ones I thought stand out mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Uh, Phantom Thread's an excellent movie. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson always makes interesting movies. He often makes interesting movies despite themselves. You're like a movie about <laughs> like a dressmaker. Am the I going to answer? The master was a, a, a case of him delving into something and and just kind of getting lost in it. I feel like I liked it, but it's a strange movie. I think I think you should give the Phantom Thread a try because one of the special things about it, it looks is great. the I way yeah it. the way it becomes fascinating about a topic because it's not about a, it's not about dressmaking. Mm-hmm. It's about the dressmaker, the, this character, and that's what is fascinating about it. Uh, Again, the rest. Darkest Hour has a great Gary Oldman performance. I wasn't really all that won over by the rest of it, personally. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a fan of Call Me By Your Name. Get Out and The Shape of Water are really the ones, as far as this best picture part. Uh, oh, Three Billboards, uh, yeah, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri is a totally fun movie. <laughs> I think you'll really like it. Very dark comedy, a bit of... Uh, a bit of over the top violence, uh, some, some really strange characters. So Woody, great Woody Harrelson performance, a great ah. Sam Rockwell performance, great Francis McDormand. I think you'll really like it a lot. It's the same director who did In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen those movies, just watch all three of them one time. <laughs> uh, I think you would really like them. Peter Dinklage has a, a cool little nice. role in this as well. So I highly recommend that one. That one stands out to me as well. So let's talk Shape of Water and Get Out. We kind of talked Get Out a good bit in the horror podcast. I'm happy to see it here. I actually would be thrilled to see this movie win because here's my thought on it. This movie was not a movie that was made... It's the kind of movie that might win in the 70s. It was made with no intention of winning an Oscar. Mm -hmm. It was made to be a fun, entertaining movie. I mean, that's the reason we go to movies, to be entertained. But it had something to say. It yeah, had a point. There was a driving force behind it that Jordan Peele wanted to get through, but he did it through what is still a fun, almost B-level horror film. I mean, A-level mm-hmm. like work done, but the plot and what's happening, I mean, this this could play at a drive-in. 
Yeah, really. It's like sort of the mad scientist layer, almost. Like yeah, kind of it, uh, and and usually we often get movies that are nominated for Oscars. The Oscars stay away from horror even more so than sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. I mean, which like, is a shame. We had The Exorcist really nominated rich. for awards. The only quote-unquote horror movie I can think of that won an Oscar, and we could probably debate this, was Silence of the Lambs, which is maybe more of a thriller and has yeah. that classy prestige sort of feel mm-hmm. to the acting stuff. Get Out is just a, it is what it is. It's a horror film, and it is the kind of horror film that people would go rent on a Friday night or go to the theater to get some shocks. And mm-hmm. The fact that it's up for a best picture and that it is, it is nominated in multiple areas shows, I think, helps demonstrate that there is something to horror. The horror has something to say, even when it's just being what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be classied up. doesn't have to have Victorian costumes. I feel like doesn't have the horror has always been more socially conscious than pretty much any of the other genres. It always has something to say. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying it's like, not, but I think that like when you look at something like the mainstream thought on horror mm-hmm. is it can't be in the same serious category correct. as yeah. these other movies. So I feel like seeing Get Out, I almost want to see Get Out win just because of that, because it's just a good old-fashioned movie. Mm-hmm. It's just a movie. Yeah. And it will show people that if you make a really good movie, you can, and that, by the way, came out this time last year, and we're still talking about it a year later. It's still mm-hmm. up for Oscars. They didn't wait and release it three months ago. Half the movie's on this list, The Post, you didn't even hear about the post until January <laughs> no. or, or December. You know, a lot of these movies were dropped at the very last minute, so we could see them. So that's Get Out. I'd love to see Get Out win. Uh, it. I'm thinking it looks like it's down to Get Out, Three Billboards, and The Shape of Water. So Shape of Water looks like it's running, uh, running the pack. I don't know if we really talked about the movie on here. I think uh, someone on Facebook referred to it as Grinding Nemo. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, what it will be interesting to watch. Uh, I guess these are spoilers. I get to watch a movie win an Oscar where a woman has a relationship with a fish person uh, <laughs> win an Oscar. I, it's you know, all about to, the metaphor. It's Nathan. good. About, it's good family values. Um, right. What did you think? And, and Guillermo del Toro, who was nominated for Pan's Labyrinth, I uh, and has done great work. I I love Pan's Labyrinth. I love The Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't as thrilled with. I didn't. I wasn't a huge fan of Pacific Rim. I Crimson Peak has grown on me, but I still think it's not really strong narratively. It's just really cool visually. Yeah. Uh, but I really like this one. I feel like, yeah, it's definitely his best work since uh, Pan's, in my opinion, Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, I really liked it. It's, um, it's a refreshing kind of story. It's definitely a lot of love to old genre monster movies. Um, and that it kind of drips off of every frame of this thing. Um, and uh, it has an interesting, compelling, very human feel to it. Um, very authentic human experience kind of feel to it. I, I thought it was uh, pretty special. I One of the things about this, it has that fairy tale feel. It's like fairy tale for adults, I guess. Totally. Uh, it definitely harkens back to like... Amelie, City of Lost Children, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Terry Gilliam, I think, you know, definitely. But it handles that fairy tale way, I think, in an, in an interesting perspective. Like, it is adult. It's definitely an R-rated film. Don't mm-hmm. don't take children to no. this. <laughs> uh, my dad was asking, oh, did you guys take him to see that movie about the girl who befriends the fish in the tank? Mm-hmm. Like, no, no. Not what you think. Um, <laughs> the, the trailers have been a little vague, but nope, not what you think. And, and it's not even those elements. Those elements are probably, even though they seem very, maybe controversial to some people, those elements are handled in a far more 
gentler hand than oh, some gen- of the violence. Yeah. The mm-hmm. violence, there's some gross stuff in this movie, too. Uh, not unlike there were in... Um, the same way there was violent stuff in Pan's Labyrinth and mm-hmm. in um, in uh, The Devil's Backbone. You know, yeah. Del Toro does... He never That's his shies away from yeah. his horror roots. And there's some horror stuff here. I like that it took place in Baltimore, but it didn't quite feel like a real-world Baltimore. Yeah. It takes place in the world of the 50s. Uh, you have a lot of those archetype characters, but they're all sort of mixed up. And so... Seeing seeing all of that, the design on the film is beautiful, I think. Mm-hmm. Story-wise, how did you feel about it? I will admit that while the movie plays well as a fairy tale, the script was a little clunky. The storyline, or the story, was a little clunky to me. It felt a little clunky, but I think the spirit of what it was trying to do won me over, really. Like, um, the tone and where it was going won me over. The exact wording of and, and how people were talking in it. Not perfect, but yeah, definitely. I, I still definitely like got what he was trying to. There's this feel of like a Douglas Sirk movie mixed with like a James Whale like Universal horror movie, like Universal monster movie mm-hmm. from the 30s. You know, because clearly you have the creature from the Black Lagoon sort of angle, but um, at the same time, the outside other outsider other angle is played in an interesting way because Del Toro doesn't really humanize the monster as much as you might think he would. Mm-hmm. Uh, he you more see how he's viewed through Sally Hawkins' eyes, and I thought she's up for for a, uh, an award. I think she was excellent. I thought she was great. She's the best part of the uh, movie. People kind of also probably don't kind of will forget that she doesn't really speak for most movies. She's yep. mute. Um, yeah, I I loved it. I thought it does have that kind of like confectionary feel where there's almost a lightness to it where it threatens almost this blow away if you will <laughs> I don't think it was the best movie of the year even from a genre standpoint but it was strong it's probably one of the strongest movies on this list but it hurts have. me to say it but if Blade Runner was on the list I probably would say Blade Runner is best picture for me this year yeah me too I love the first Blade Runner that was a fantastic movie also, just really good as a sequel. It's a good good demonstration of how you make a sequel. Ties mm-hmm. in. Makes the other movie stronger in a way. And I love the original Blade Runner. But I mm-hmm. think they tie together well. And, yeah, I agree. Uh, actor Daniel Kaluuya is up for Get Out. I loved him in that. I, Gary Oldman's probably going to win. But I think that, again, be interesting to see someone playing a kind of... He goes through a lot of stuff in Get Out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like uh, he's not he's an audience surrogate too, yeah. to some degree, but he does a good job of being a like character that's separate. Richard Jenkins is nominated for Shape of Water. Uh, I want to see Sam Rockwell, Sam Rockwell win for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, because his character's kind of nuts in that. Frances McDormand will, will probably, I think, she's at the head. I really liked Margot Robbie and I Tanya, and actually, I like Sam. Actually, everybody. Take Meryl Streep off the list. I mean, I'm sorry, I love Meryl Streep. She's a good actress, but mm-hmm. they're just nominating her because she was in a movie. Yeah. She happened to be in a movie in 2017, so therefore she's nominated. <laughs> I mean, that that's what it is. Sally Hawkins, Frances McDormand, Margot Robbie, uh, Saoirse Ronan, and Lady Bird, all excellent. Meryl Streep, I'm sorry, her role in The Post is not at the same level as these other people. Now, I would I would, I would, say, I, I will never say this again, hopefully, and I never imagined I would say this myself, but for me, if I were to honestly say who completely went to the next level and embodied their character and therefore was the best actor in that regard I'm going to say James Franco because oh, I thought Disaster Artist he was a complete Tommy Wiseau we we know why like, he's not on this list yeah we know of course, he's not on this list. Of course. and I mean I'm not going to make any comments on this but I mean him being on this list or not being on this list and I'm not saying right or wrong he's not on this list 
it's not mess. That's not a reflection of his acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think. Uh, yes, um, I love personally not weighty role. It's not weighty role or anything, but I just felt like he just completely turned into that other character. Like almost like in 1922, Thomas Jane completely turned into somebody else that you didn't. Yep, no, I'd agree. I mean, there was a lot. There was a lot going on. You know, with with that. Um, Animated features, I know you're not as... No, I'll let you take Co- the lead on Coco that. was a great movie. Go see Coco. A very interesting look at uh, Mexican Mexican folklore mythology and a really interest, intriguing look at uh, the Mexican afterlife and that kind of whole view of things. Uh, in a way that's much more... They did a movie a couple years ago called like The Book of Life, which was mm-hmm. kind of felt like... Uh, it was Ernest Del Toro had produced it. It was interesting, but it also just kind of had that feeling of, here's a kid's movie about the afterlife. I feel like Pixar was trying to do something a little bit more than they normally do with Coco, and I really liked it for that. Um, I'm looking through here. There's not a lot else genre-wise, but we should talk about the fact that Adapted Screenplay, Logan got a nomination. That for really, really surprises me. And The Disaster Artist did, too. Um, I Yeah, I th- thought that Logan was such a different movie. It is fair to be included in the list. Like, Usually you don't get that at all from the Oscars, uh, anything... Um, genre related like that but I think that Logan was such a unique character study unique story unique it went different places than you were expecting it to it was not a superhero movie really um that, that, I think it's absolutely fair to be there and heck I'm hoping it does well <laughs> you know like yeah I'd like I mean I don't know that it will win I'm probably not but um I'm trying to think of what would in per se that's like It'll probably be Call Me By Your Name because that's the oscar choice, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm disappointed. Uh, any, is there a War for the Planet of the Apes anywhere on there? Going to get to that in a minute. I, I think maybe one or two. There's one definite because um, that was really area I can think of. And you in here, you're gonna you're gonna recognize where it gets nominated. It's on here VFX. once. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about that because I feel like yeah, this War the Planet so of the much Apes more to that movie than um, the damn VFX. I think War of the Planet Apes was a stronger movie than Shape of Water, personally. That's me personally. Like, character-wise, development-wise, there was a lot of going on in that movie, I think. I mean, but it looked like it wasn't. It looks like a kind of standard action film. But mm-hmm. I I think it doesn't look as... Um, it might not be as pleasing in all those elements that people want, but there was a lot of really good work. Mm-hmm. Um, I cared more about Caesar than I cared about the fish man. I said it. <laughs> um, and you did too. I did too. <laughs> and uh, I think when we left there, I was like, "That's the best movie I've seen this summer." <laughs> that was a good movie. I need. To, I've got it sitting there on Blu-ray, waiting to watch. And and, and Blade Runner as well. Uh, the quick thing about Logan that I think is interesting about that adapted screenplay, and you were kind of pointing out, there is a story. There's Old Man Logan, but it's that's very like. It, it's almost only superficial the relationship to it. It's almost like oh, mm-hmm. old Wolverine in the future. Is right. Kind of, there's a little more to it than that. But Logan is really made up of a couple of different storylines. Old Man Logan's definitely a uh, inspiration, but then so are the whole X twenty three storylines mm-hmm. from the comics. So it's interesting because almost everything else on this list is someone adapting a single source material into taking a book and turning it into a movie. This is taking kind of 
a character and lots of different storylines and adapting it. I think it's just expanding the idea, regardless of whether it's genre or not, it's expanding the idea of what adapted screenplay means. And I kind of like that they're willing to do that, to Mm -hmm. kind of say... Because when you're adapting comic books, I'd rather see that, honestly. I'd rather see someone take material and mythology and build something new instead of trying to adapt a straight comic book Mm storyline. I think we saw them try to adapt some of the Japanese storylines with the other Wolverine movie. didn't really work. Uh, we've seen mm-hmm. him try to do some other movies. Uh, Logan worked because they were taking they were taking his pieces and building something sort of meaningful out of them. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. Um, Blade Runner gets like cinematography nomination. I think it uh, and a sound editing nomination along with sound the Last editing. Jedi. Uh, Dunkirk uh, sound sound person. editing definitely on Dunkirk because that. Yeah. Is a movie with a lot of like explosions and stuff, and yet is definitely not overpowered by. But it. here's where people just get the production design. Blade Runner gets a production design. Uh, well, it did have course, good production it design. Did. Well, it, yeah, um, but it, it's the technical. It's categories. always they the, always, yeah, they do always that. leave the fantastical to that. Uh, f- yes, um, but let's talk real quick about. Because it is kind of fun to look at the visual effects, and because where the movies that get nominated, nowhere else get nominated. I think Blade Runner 2049 should win for Best Visual Effects. They can have the strongest. Let me read yeah, the nominations. So there's about five of them here. Blade Runner 2049, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Kong Skull Island, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I actually kind of have you see Kong in there. Um, mm-hmm. I think I have the last... strong work. Yeah, the last Kong... Work. But they usually overlook the giant monster movies, even yeah. in the visual category. I remember the last Kong... From 2005, get nominated there too. But that movie almost had more of a feeling of like a prestige picture. <laughs> I think Kong Skull Island is just a good old fashioned monster movie. But I love the visual effects in Kong Skull Island. All these are strong for the visual effects. Guardians of the Galaxy had great visual effects. Uh, you know what's interesting though about all these is the, it used to be that you'd see a movie nominated for visual effects and you knew they were kind of doing one visual effect. Like Terminator 2 is nominated for the liquid dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are all really movies that built worlds. Mm-hmm. If you think about them, they all built like individual worlds last Jedi. Star Wars is always going to get nominated. but um, And they have strong, strong work. But I think Blade Runner... The impressive thing to me about Blade Runner is that it found a way to make the movie look like the movie that was made in 1982. Yeah, exactly. But still feel strong and visual without feeling the need to update everything because we have bigger effects and we could do that. Mm-hmm. Keeping it looking like 1982 while allowing it to feel more fluid and you can go around the environment more, I thought it was fascinating. Like, it was like they always knew how to hold back mm-hmm. and like not get ahead of themselves. They could have clearly updated it and made some excuse for it, but they worked so fastidiously to not just make the effects look good, but to really feel like you could watch those movies. And the next time I watch it, it's what I want to do, watch them back to back. And if you oh, know, yeah. So... I don't know, probably won't tune into the Oscars, but it's interesting to see. As go Shape of Water, go Get Out. I'd like to see either one of those win, take the best picture. I, I feel like we're missing an opportunity if we don't give it to one of those movies. Um, because the bottom line is, it's all kind of about, like, if movies like this win, we get to see more movies like this. We're going to see more movies like this anyway, but I think it opens up people to making them. Maybe for better or worse, but I mean... It, you know, Guillermo del Toro is going to get whatever he wants to make next funded. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it'll be the Mountains of Madness. Oh my goodness, that's my dream. Um, I, I'm just saying, like, uh, this kind of stuff, you get a certain bit. Why do you win Oscar? So you can have some F.U. money. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, right. or, you know, you have a little bit of... Um, Juice. 
Yes. Uh, in the system. B- built up that you can kind of do what you want. And I think Del Toro would be the kind of guy to go and and do something like this. Hopefully. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd like to see him do that. Uh, get, and again, seeing Jordan Peele. Seeing the, I just want to see the guy who plays the Hollywood script doctor. Yeah. <laughs> what was this? You know, something Junior the Third or whatever. Oh, is so good. Uh, seeing, the, seeing that guy, knowing that he won a best... Best director or one for best picture will be satisfying to me. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I think that's it for us. Um, take care, guys. Have a good evening. See ya. See ya.